Hello everybody, and welcome back for another episode of Mangum Reads, or for at least this episode known as my movement from the manumission of mangled motifs. I'm Spencer, with me of course are BJ and Sarah. How are y'all doing? Doing just doing fine, quite. Spencer. Yep, doing well, Spencer. I see you jumped around in the alphabet to, to the center this time. It's whatever occurs to me in any given moment. I think I wrote down like four of these when I was first pondering it back about three or four weeks ago, so I'll have to make up something for next week. You're Sounds a wild good. man, Spencer. I'm excited. In the most bored and depressing kind of ways. Uh, for this episode, we are, return- we are going on with a topic that we kind of taunted last week, and that we are exploring the book Midnight in the Garden of, Go- of Good and Evil by John... Uh, how, is his name- how is his name pronounced? John Barrent? Barrent, I assume. Yeah, Barrent. But before we get too deep, I actually wanted to talk briefly about our previous uh, episode. And I just sent you guys a link that I want you to listen to quickly. And I just heard this uh, this song on the radio recently at the gym. And it made me flip my views 180. I have now decided that everything should be copyrighted in perpetuity <laughs> and never entered into uh, the public domain because... Uh, awful things like what I just sent you happen, and I am not willing to accept that into uh, my cultural lexicon. Uh, for our okay. audience that's wondering, we are now listening to an Ariana Grande song entitled Seven Rings. And if you have any like for the sound of music or any of the music contained within said uh, uh, musical, it, it might pain you to then listen to this song and... I, I, d- I don't think a um, a sampling or a referencing is quite what this um, this song does to uh, well a few of my favorite things which this song is. Well, I will say I think that my um, email is sort of self-selecting and uh, being the arbiter of my taste right now because no message has come through and from the description I'm getting that's fine. Oh no worries, it's on Skype. I sent oh, okay. it through the uh, the Skype conversation. Um, yeah, so so I've. <laughs> You know, decided that everything I said about copyright and uh, things entering the public domain completely null and void. Um, I'm all for it. You know, give it, give everybody all the copyrights that they need forever. <laughs> Artists have to come up with new things. And the power of Ariana Grande in a three-minute song to completely reverse your views on the topic. <laughs> yep. So, how do you feel about it, Spencer? Now that you've been exposed. To- well, you know, I'm halfway listening to it while I've got you in my ear, so maybe after the podcast I'll, I'll uh, let you know what my views are. <laughs> but so far at least, it does not appear to be fitting into the genres of music I quite enjoy. Fair enough. <clears throat> All right, well, um, now that we took that foray in a callback to the last episode and uh, my complete flip-flop in my views, we, uh, as Spencer said, we are doing uh, Midnight in the Garden of Evil by John Barron. I believe it's pronounced. And uh, Spencer, as I feel like you quite enjoy, um, here's a bit of trivia, and you might have the same Wikipedia page that I have open, but do you know how <laughs> many on. weeks it, this book was a New York Times bestseller? Um, many. It's like over 200 or something, yes, right? Yes, it is over 200. It's 216 weeks, and it's still the longest standing New York Times bestseller, which makes me happy, even though the... One of the books that I assume could have taken that mantle, uh, Sarah, I feel like you would have been happy if they took over because I, I think only Harry Potter, uh, you know, of any more recent book could have taken that over. But this is I'm, what I live I'm, and die by. Yes. So so they did not uh, uh, knock Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil off that pedestal. Um, and 
I'm actually curious, uh, maybe we can get Leon at some point, but I heard that he's not only read this book, but has watched the film adaptation and, you know, get his opinions on some of Clint Eastwood's uh, acting uh, movie adaptation. Well, I will say that um, he has watched the adaptation. He has not read the book. Um, hmm. And I have not watched the adaptation. So together we form a sort of real person. You've, you've completed the spectrum. Uh, one thing I know about the adaptation is that some of the people that he's actually describing and talking about appear as themselves in it, including Chablis. Yeah, Lady oh. Chablis. Um, so does Joe Odom? Because I think it'd be really funny if Chablis played herself and uh Joe Odom, a character that that talks about playing himself in the movie adaptation within the book, if he actually didn't get to play himself. <laughs> I, I do not know if Joe Odom and Mandy play themselves. I can look it up right now while we're talking about it. But um, this book is interesting for me because it, we're really keeping to a theme as we've done for the last few weeks and exploring different genres. And that this is a genre which has been kind of colloquially known as faction of where it is a non-fiction novel, kind of really drawing from the mantle of what uh, Truman Capote would explore, like, in Cold Blood, uh, of where the writer swears up and down that everything he's describing, everything that he's writing about, all of the characters are real. The only thing he's changed are the names and the timing of events. So Whether we Dragnet? believe, but <laughs> I, think I, was, I think I was channeling Dragnet to a certain degree, yes. <laughs> So actually, uh, no. that, that's an interesting question, though. So I had not heard the term or read anything about this idea of, of faction. But I think that the question of genre in relation to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil is is an interesting one, because in everything that I've been reading, there are like vastly different descriptions of how people are classifying it. Um, so, BJ, what would you classify it as, as a genre? Um, maybe an adaptation of, of, you know, true events. Um, I, I guess sort of somewhere between the nonfiction and fiction, it's sort of hard for me to, uh, pin down, I guess. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, movie based on real life events kind of thing. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah Spencer, what about you? Well, I think it very much depends on whether we want to view this as a novel or as a kind of in the life documentary. Um, I think, I think faction is accurate for what he is disclaiming that he is doing in terms of just describing real events and putting it into a, coher a coherent narrative. If I was just, you know, ignoring that background, just viewing it purely as a novel, it really kind of dives into the Gothic to a certain degree for me. I mean, there's a, a subgenre I've read a little bit about before called Southern Gothic, and oh, this yeah. has a lot of the hallmarks of that, particularly in some of the later chapters as he starts exploring various magical roots and underpinnings of Southern society. Yeah, it's got a very, like, Flannery O'Connor kind of thing going on in parts of it. Um, I've also read it described as sort of like part travel log, um, part kind of love story to the South, which I think goes into the Southern Gothic as well. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, I think, I guess I, all of those things kind of play into it in a way that for me does make it really difficult, difficult to classify. I would be interested to see kind of where it is shelved um, in a bookstore. I imagine for the 200 and something weeks that was on the shelf, it was shelved at the front, wherever that was. <laughs> um but it's, it is very difficult to categorize. It's also very difficult to, for us to kind of describe in any coherent manner because as a result of it, as you said, coming across as kind of like a travel log of where it's his own experiences is just got increasingly um, fascinated and taken with the city that it doesn't really fit to a classic narrative style of where it seems like in its first chapter it introduces maybe what you might think is going to be the central focus of the plot. And then it spends like 200 pages 
really kind of doing little character studies of people in Savannah as part of describing the city. Um, and so the other couple of things that I thought were was interesting is um, I believe it's in um, I actually listened to the audiobook and then read the book prior to the podcast. And I believe there was an interview with him that was at the end of the audiobook, which basically said that his editor like read through it and it was kind of like, well, this is really about Savannah. Um, are you sure that anybody is actually going to care if, especially if they haven't visited Savannah, like why would anybody really want to read this? Cause it's about like people and places in Savannah. And if they don't have a reference, like who's actually going to care about it. And it was kind of like, all right, well, you know, it's a, it's a good story. It's a lot of fun, you know, sure. We'll publish it. And then it's been translated into many, many different languages and read all over the world. And the editor is kind of like, all right, well, I didn't quite call that one right. So can I give you another piece of trivia um, related to that? Please. Uh, please, yeah. Okay, so um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil came out in 1994. Um, eight, and, and so this goes along with your sort of BJ point about, well, it's it's about Savannah and what if people don't really care about it? And in 1994 was a time when Savannah was like really kind of in some doldrums. Um, so it came out in 1994. Eight months later, tourism was up by 46%. Um, conference booking in Savannah was up by 40%, and then it was an, up another 30% one year later. And that is all attributed to the popularity of this book. I mean, honestly, like, after reading this book, and, and it, it's a place that I now want to go visit and experience, <laughs> and, you know, see the square, see the things that he describes there. And before that, it was just like, why would I want to go to some town in Georgia? I don't I don't even really want to go to Atlanta, so why? Why anything? Why would I, you know, visit Georgia? Period. Um, so, BJ, you haven't been to Savannah. I have not. And Spencer, have you been to Savannah? I've spent two days in Savannah. In court? Uh, no, uh, we. Bridget and I were uh, driving up the uh, East Coast to go to my parents for Thanksgiving, and we stopped in a, a few cities like uh, St. Augustine. And we were planning on stopping in Charleston, but we saw that Savannah was cheaper, and neither of us knew anything about it, so. We decided we'd just stop for a couple of days and see if there's anything to see. And we were in two days flat taken with that little, with that city. Gorgeous. Everybody was friendly. It was a wonderful place to walk around and explore. We had a blast. And Sarah, I, I've heard that you and Lee spent some time there. We did. We spent um, almost a week there the summer after we got married. And um, it was, like you said, Spencer, it was absolutely charming. Um, we stayed in a bread and bed and breakfast and we took our dog with us and it was very dog friendly. And um, we had sherry every evening and the like traditional <laughs> tea every afternoon. And then we went out to dinner and we had our open container laws and we walked around and had our drinks with us. It was great. It was really all I want out of the world. It, it was, it's really fun to read his account of it because it matches so many of my experiences, particularly as you just said, alcohol is everywhere and easy to access and everyone is drinking as you go. And I don't think that it was the alcohol that was responsible for the ghost that was in our room in the bed and breakfast. <laughs> um, well, speaking of, I'm going to grab myself some whiskey for, uh, for the podcast. Um, and then the other thing that I figured I'd add to uh, this discussion, not about Savannah itself, but the classification of the book. So on Libby, um, I can. I looked it up, and and it, on the listings that it has is fiction, history, literature, true crime, true crime, and nonfiction. So okay, all that's of just the throwing up your hands. <laughs> yeah. So 
I, I, I guess, you know, I kind of feel like, you know, different books, bookstores are going to have it in different places, sort of depending on, you know, what the person that read it felt about it. And I could also see it being in two places and just, you know, wherever it's bought more, like they'll, you know, either refill or eventually shift it over. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's fair. Um, and so neither of you had ever read the book before. Is that right? I had not. No. Well, before what? Uh, sorry, before we had decided to read it for this oh, podcast. So, so I actually had listened to it. Okay. Um, uh, I don't know, six months ago. Oh, okay. Something like that. Um, because my mother had recommended it to me um, as like one of the best audiobooks that she's listened to because of the um, the reader does such a good job with the characters and bringing them to life. Um, and so on her recommendation, I'd gotten the audiobook and then I went back and read it prior to, uh, to our going through it. I'd gotcha. be very curious to check out I'd be very curious to check out the audiobooks. As we've talked about, this book is, as much as Savannah is the central character, it has a substantial amount of window dressing and stage directions and other little characters it uses to describe Savannah. So I would I would not envy the task of any person that will read this um, as an audiobook just because of how many different diverse characters they'd have to represent. And I think they this the reader does, does quite a good job. Um, it was actually kind of funny um, because... It's an older audiobook, um, and so I, I guess a lot of the audiobooks that I've written, listened to recently are a lot newer, and so I guess they have a different feel in sort of how they're put together. But um, I think that it's also interesting because as I'm reading, like I didn't initially get the how the accents and the different characters and how they speak come through in, in the written word. And so I heard it first, and then the reader was good enough that, you know, his voice essentially translated to the words. On. There are several times of where he describes what the accent of a character is. But the only one of where he makes it very abundantly clear in the text, I'd say, would be Chablis herself. Everybody else is, pre- the direct words are presented as if they don't have an accent, even if he describes the character as having one. Yes. Um, and, and so I, I guess in the audiobook, I guess I got different amounts of drawl and um, things like that from the, the various characters. And so when the uh, when John's character, I guess we'll call him as the narrator, when when he is speaking, does he not have a southern accent then? Um, I don't believe so. And I also think that um, a couple of other characters, um, namely Jim Williams, mm-hmm. doesn't. And, you know, so the right people don't have or have less of an accent or, or no accent. Yeah, that's interesting. It would be interesting to kind of go through and track that and see kind of where that de- where that decision was made. Yeah, um, and again, like I'd I'd have to now go back again <laughs> because like uh, you know, for the most part, audiobooks are fairly immersive. So it's you're like you know, the first time I was going through it, I'm not like, all right, well, you know, is this does this character have the right accent that I think they should have based on my reading of the book? Yeah. Uh, so it, it's always it's always fun for me to listen to the audiobook because about half the time I've been reading part of at least part of our substantial portion of the book to bridge it out loud. So it's always mm-hmm. fun to see if I was at all close with what the, the professionals <laughs> decided the accent should be. Um, actually, uh, interesting enough. So the narrator is um, Jeff Woodman, and he also did the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, really, and Flowers for Algernon hmm. um, as sort of major ones that. I assume the two of you have heard of before. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, yeah, I, th- I think that's interesting. I'd be very curious to hear how he does with uh, Flowers for Algernon. I'm curious to listen to that. Anyway. Uh, in, in terms of other un- unenviable tasks, uh, Sarah, you were kind of, you kind of volunteered and, and or were volunteered to set a bit of a structure to our discussion of this book. Uh, have you determined how you want to proceed in terms of having us talk about this? Well, I have some preliminary thoughts, um, but I think, you know, I think what we should do is really to go through the the quote unquote plot of um, of the book, talk about the um, murder, the trial, the whole sort of judicial thing going on, um, which is really the kind of the the scaffolding on which the story hangs. Although I was saying um, before we started recording that you know for me this part is actually the the least interesting part um, of the book, but I do think it's sort of necessary to have this progression in in the back of our minds because it does really thread through everything else in the book. So maybe we can start with kind of the the plot itself. Um, Spencer, I'm sure we have some legal questions for you um, about said plot. Um, and then, oh, yeah. and then we can go either in this episode or, or maybe we just want to do plot in this episode, but go maybe into the next episode into the specific characters that kind of revolve around the plot and revolve around, um, or that, that John gets himself kind of enmeshed in and entangled with, um, and really do a deep dive into them and then kind of end with the grand dame of the characters, uh, Savannah herself. Sounds like a good plan to me. I mean, I'm right there with you that the most fascinating part of this book was from like page 20 through like page 200 of yeah. where, where he's just talking about a random different character each each chapter. About his own, it's, I mean, it's, I fall in love with the book and I fall in love with Savannah seemingly in the same process he did is he just got to know the people in it. Got to see their various adventures and their various odd lives. But the book... Seemingly the justification for the book, and probably the justification he had to his editor is why he was writing this damn thing, is this murder, I'll call it murder mystery, this murder trial, this true crime drama, that he seemingly just stumbled his way into. The book opens with him interviewing this uh, Jim Williams character, probably without any clue that said character would be involved in a murder in short time thereafter. Yeah, and I also find it kind of interesting because it kind of... uh... It kind of teases like what's going on and then it's like all right well this isn't really important what's really important <laughs> is savannah so we're going to spend a while just you know i was just hanging out in savannah and these are the people that i met and then it then i feel like he's like oh yeah why was i talking about stuff in savannah oh yeah like i came down here because you know there was a murder so let me tell you about that i mean that's kind of boring like let me tell you a little bit more about the society <laughs> And, you know, it was funny, Spencer, when you when we were in sort of the process of reading this book and you sent several messages that were kind of about the plot. Um, and I think yeah. DJ and I were both like, what plot are you talking about? Yeah. What do you mean? I think I sent a message 100 pages in saying, when is he going to get back to the main plot of this? He introduced <laughs> it. Now he's kind of gotten lost since then. <laughs> And it is like it's a funky structure because it feels in some way it feels like Barrett himself was not like super comfortable in the idea that his readership was going to buy into the sort of Savannah as a book either. Um, And so Mm -hmm. that kind of seems why, at least to me in my reading, why we have this sort of teaser of Jim Williams and his sort of whole shtick at the beginning but then it drops away to be mm-hmm. gotten back to in the last like third of the book or so. 
It's fun. It's clear that he did not... If he wrote this stream of thought, he went back and tried to connect everything together. Because mm-hmm. even as we're exploring these various little character studies, uh, there are references back to the quote-unquote main... We'll call it like A plot. Or, we'll call it main plot. Fine. I don't think it is, <laughs> but we'll call it that for sake of ease. But there's constant references back to Jim Williams, back to Danny, back to the characters that will be part of this, and hinting at the various aspects and perspectives on these characters that will govern how the trial will ultimately proceed. Um so, shall we get into it? I mean, should yeah. we talk about uh, Jim Williams himself as our seemingly central character that starts the book off with? Well, can we yeah, take a and... step back for just a second and talk um, a little bit about who Berendt is and kind of how he came to be in this situation? Sure. Um, so, uh, other than, like, he's an author and wanted to write a book, or...? Well, so, <laughs> yeah, as, he, it, as he... he explains it in the narrative, he is a sort of journalist... Um, writer figure who lives in New York, right? He is not from Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, he is very much an outsider. He finds himself with like extra time and extra money and decides that he is going to start taking weekend trips to all of these various cities because he is writing in a time when uh, airfare becomes super, super cheap. And rather than dining out in New York City, he decides that he can get a plane ticket somewhere. And so he starts visiting these cities where he eventually comes upon Savannah and really never stops going to Savannah. Yeah, I enjoy his description that a, a night out in New York City during the growing food craze, which is still consumed pretty much every major city in America now, mm-hmm. uh, costs essentially the same as taking like a full week paid vacation to a, to a New Orleans. It's just how extreme it's gotten during that period. And so he and a few friends decide to go to Charleston and as they're just like driving around, they just see Savannah on a map. And it kind of calls back to him these old vague memories he's had of the towns and the kid. Um, that I think he references um, Treasure Island, which is one of the first few times I ever heard of Savannah, um, as the place uh, where Captain Flint died and left the map with Billy Bones. Um, he talks about a story that he read, like at the top, um, a newspaper clipping at the top of a trunk of a lady who, uh, what was it, that she tangoed all the way down to the police station or something like that? Yeah. Yes. So uh, there's one, what was the, th- it was the third one. He distinctly had three. I just don't remember what the third one was right now. Yeah, I, I don't remember. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, like, I remember the top either. of the trunk. It'll come to a minute. But he, he has these these little inklings, these little tastes of Savannah from back in the day that kind of painted a picture in his head. I think it's. I think it was some music, too, like um, that uh, that woman from Savannah, the hard-hearted hard, hard Hannah. Hard-hearted Hannah. Yeah, the vamp from Savannah. Um, That's it. Yeah, um, and it's interesting that it's kind of these little these little snippets that draw him into the idea of Savannah because that also tends to kind of mirror what he is doing with the structure of the novel as well. He gives gives these snippets, these kind of snapshots um, that create, and I'd love to talk about this later, but they create a very specific for me feel um, of what Savannah is and how. Um, how it's narrated and how it's constructed and put together, but we can save that for later. And he does reference them later, mm-hmm. um, basically each one of them, and sort of his deepening understanding of Savannah and talking to the characters we see. Um, and so, yeah, I, I definitely think it's worth uh, maybe in in episode three or you know, however however we end up <laughs> divvying these up exactly yeah. because uh, you know talking for so long but um i, I, I will, it's definitely a topic we should address because i love I, I love how he portrays his initial impressions and views of the city around these three stories and then tells us an entire book giving us our own stories to give an impression of the city but he takes pains from the very beginning to say that each of those three stories did not give him an accurate picture of savannah as a city mm-hmm. so it's in some ways almost critiquing his own style depicting the town 
that he can give you an image. He can give you these notable, memorable uh, stories that will color your experience of the city, but don't necessarily treat them as an accurate or complete view of them. Um, and so I guess um, when, when, we t- when we're talking about the, the main plot, we probably should have done this a little bit more before the episode, but I feel like um, we, we need to talk about, I guess, two main characters which is uh, Jim Williams and uh, the the nice young man that works for him. It's Danny, right? I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying it's to da- Danny yeah. Hansfield. That's it. Um, and maybe talk. We'll probably eventually get into their relationship um, as we go throughout this uh, murder, murder mystery, murder trial, um, and then. I guess my question for you guys is how many characters are we going to have to start pulling in to the main plot before we can actually finish the main plot? Um, but we'll see. Yeah. To start I, out with. Yeah. Well, I would argue that we can do the main plot until we get to the trial with relatively few characters, but then the trial yes. happens. Um, and it, and it becomes so much more complicated. Um, so Jim Williams is a collector of antiques um and he's somewhat obsessed with Fabergé mm-hmm. um and he's as far as i can tell somewhat of a everyday recluse but is known throughout Savannah for throwing these extravagant and incredible parties uh for uh, a christmas party one for sort of the people that he just deems worthy in the town and then the next night a bachelor's only um regalia uh next party which is the supposedly more interesting and more entertaining of the two he's an interesting he's an interesting character because as you said he really loves living in the trappings of aristocracy the trappings of nobility all of their odds and ends but he really glories also in mocking them roundly that he kind of portrays his job as being almost like a vulture feasting on their leftovers as they fall into poverty and in the very early chapters, he just spends most of his time telling all little bits of gossip to mock them and the, their, all the various platitudes they live in, that they're just hiding what they actually are. That he, I think he says that he enjoys the, he enjoys that uh, he's nouveau rich, but it's the rich part that matters. Yes. And, yeah. and other, there was uh, some people that came through his house and was like, oh, he must have old money because, you know, he's leaving things in their sort of original state rather than repairing them and and you know making them nice bright and shiny which you know is sort of one of those now i guess is a hallmark of like everybody knows that sort of like the difference between uh you know nouveau riche and and old money where old money is going to have like the you know 1980s land rover that looks like you know it'll it'll get going but you're going to pack, you know, some dogs in there and it's got mud all over it rather than, you know, the Bentley that, that somebody drives you around in. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also reminds me of um, apparently, uh, I think it was in Ireland, but it might have been elsewhere in the UK and Europe that um, you can, they were essentially giving castles away for free as long as you could upkeep them. I remember that, yeah. Yeah, and so basically... Uh, uh, Jim Williams has been buying various mansions in Savannah and has moved from mansion to mansion and has sort of like he's renovating and upkeeping these massive uh, Victorian manors. I think they're, uh, you know, the most recent described. Uh, and so 
it's not a hundred percent clear how he's made his money. It seems to be mostly uh, wheeling and dealing, and then most recently um, antiquing, buying and selling antiques. Um, but basically, through very humble beginnings, he's amassed um, what seems to be, at least at the outset, a an impressive fortune, an impressive wealth of things within his house. Uh, the book describes how he has become a very important man in Savannah in a variety of ways, that he essentially has been an integral part of the revitalization of the historic district in Savannah through his own purchasing and flipping and remodeling and restoring houses, that he has become a key part of the Savannah social scene, which is all important for the town in terms of how the town goes about its day and its life with these uh, annual Christmas parties that he throws that are people's reputations and hopes for the year are made or break, are made, um, made or broken by whether they're on his in or out stack of cards. Uh, at the same time, though, he's, I think, you, well, I'm curious what you guys think. I, w- I wouldn't say that, particularly here at the start of the book, that he's a very popular person, necessarily. That um, everybody wants to be in his good graces, they want to make use of him, but he's not really part of the inner circles of the city. He's not a member of the various clubs, he's not a member of the, the gentry, quote-unquote. And a lot of people have a certain degree of disdain for him in certain ways. And he really cultivates that disdain as well. He seems to, he seems to yeah. really enjoy it. But I also feel like he's kind of... Um, and you know, this is, you know, very much projecting, but he's like the, the wife of like a really rich doctor or lawyer or something like that, where the guy has essentially donated money to loads of organization and uh, organizations and has installed his wife on the board and everybody hates her. And that's kind of like how I imagine him in sort of all of the society of savannah that he's actually part of that basically he's thrown his money around and forced himself to be part of these groups that are controlling uh a lot of the society and culture that's going on in savannah but it's kind of like a you're not really one of us and we really don't want you here but we really want your money mm-hmm. and i think i think he enjoys their discomfort that he's kind of forcibly inserted himself in all of these situations I mean, one of my favorite descriptions of a character is one of the first few lines of the book is that when the author is first describing him, he describes him as having eyes so black they were like the tinted windows of a sleek limousine. He could see out but didn't see in. That's an early introduction to this character about he represents to the world that, you know, he is there, he's there he's there for their entertainment, he's there for their support, that he has his own business interests and he's happy to work with you. But the actual nature of the man and what he really necessarily wants or how even other people necessarily view him as purposefully open. Sarah, I apologize. I cut you off earlier. What were you going to say? No, that's that's fine. I was simply going to say um, that, you know, in er, very early in the book, uh, Berendt is at pains to kind of give us anecdotes about um, the extent to which Jim Williams is willing to um, irk people around him in order to have life structured the way that he wants it to be and feels it should be. Um, yeah. And so we have, like his, you know, go ahead. His longstanding argument with his neighbors, um, particularly, you know, essentially the neighbors across the way. And I feel like his mansion is also like right near, and, um, you know, we'll get to it more later, but one of the society clubs, the Oglethorpe Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he basically bought a larger house near it because they wouldn't let him in. Yes. Um, he also you know, I think quintessential and like weirdly, it seems offhand when they first mention the story, but it becomes throughout the book, like 
a kind of driving factor between of many of his, his relationships with his neighbors and people around him. This sort of anecdote where, uh, without his permission, a film production company had come in to um, film a sort of civil war romance, something or other, um, mm -hmm. and had dumped down all of this dirt on the square and moved all of the cars and um, told everybody to stay in their houses for the next week or whatever it was for filming. Um, and so he decided that he was going to hang a Nazi flag um, out of his window to ruin, um, to ruin the timeline of the film, uh, which stopped yeah. production for like days um, as they stood at a standstill, but then also is emblematic in and of itself but then also kind of began to structure his relationship with those neighbors across the way that you mentioned, um, the Adler, is it, it's the Adlers, right? It's the Adlers, yeah. 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 So, yeah. so basically the only Jewish family like in society, Georgia society. Yeah. Um, uh, and there, so is, there's one other, he just doesn't, he's not practicing and he's raised his kids Catholic and he's married to a Catholic, but he's, he's Jewish too, right? Right. Well, he he's not Jewish enough that they kept him out of the Oglethorpe Club. Right. Which they notably kept Lee Adler and his wife out of. Yes. But they had this other guy that said that they could say, you know, we don't exclude Jews. See, we have one. Um, which but... which I, I love. They try to use Jim Williams. Well, we're not spoiling anything. Presumably our, our readers have read the book at this point. But Jim Williams later is established to be gay. And once that becomes very clear in court, Several of the other members of the established society all go, well, of course you knew he was gay. We were happy to have a gay friend because that way we could say, look, we've got a gay friend. We're not bigoted. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll sort of gloss over that because I feel like we're going to get into modern times a little bit too much if we talk too long about that. But yeah. um, I think that it's one of the things that um, really sets Jim Williams apart from a lot of the rest of society is that he doesn't have a wife. Mm -hmm. And so having the wife and usually kids is essentially part of how this society interacts. And also a lot of the courting uh, rituals are sort of part of how the society interacts. And we mentioned Jim Williams' uh, Christmas party, which is the night after the debutante ball, I believe, or mm -hmm. something like that. And so the there are things that I have no understanding of, like the debutante ball, that are apparently very important in Savannah society, mm -hmm. um, well, which I thought. Yeah. You didn't have cotillion growing up? Uh, no. <laughs> I had, I had friends like with Cotillion. Is that like a bar and bat mitzvah? What? Is that like a bar and bat mitzvah? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, it's more, it's more folks who are like training you to be an adult, I suppose, rather than the ceremony of becoming an adult. And a certain type of adult. <laughs> yeah, the, su the southern expectation of an adult. Yeah. Um, and I would say, you know, but related to the idea of the debutante ball and Cotillion and all of that, I mean and kind of Jim Williams' place in the society is that the story itself um, or its portrayal of Savannah High Society certainly is really also a story of this kind of romanticized Southern hero and Belle culture, um, mm -hmm. which Jim Williams is just never going to fit into. No, and he, he takes pains to mock. Mm -hmm. I mean, the er earliest stories he tells about, you know, these great, well-established families in town let me tell you about how their son was left castrated on a porch and they covered it up. He 
I don't know. What, I'd love to know more about the guy, the, the guy's actual background. But as much as he loves being rich, I mean, he loves the various trappings that come with it. He has a disdain for the nobility and the established forces of the city. He vaguely will take part in their operations, but we don't see that he wants to be a member of any clubs. We don't see he wants to participate in any form of their society beyond what he uh, himself is leading or he himself is setting up. No, he wants to be the kingmaker, not an actual like participating member um, in any of these kind of rituals or communities or whatever. Which proves ironic later of where, there's some points later in the story you start getting involved in the trial of where he is begrudging the, the society that they're not viewing him as being part of this established and protected gentry. That if they'd been in the same situation as him, he would never have been tried, never, never even charged, much less tried. So as much as he's mocking them for these things, these protections, these ways that they isolate themselves from the world and remove themselves from actual meaningful involvement, he's disappointed that, that he hasn't earned them in some way when push comes to shove later on. So we start in Jim Williams' house with Jim Williams kind of holding court with Barrett mm -hmm. um, and telling these anecdotes and giving the kind of outline. We get an outline, I think, of who Jim Williams is in the moment, mm -hmm. even if we never, I would argue, we never really learn that much more about him or his motivations or anything, really. Um, mm -hmm. But then we meet our, our second character. Um, well, I mean should we, should we should we describe what we learn about Jim Williams as a character before we introduce Danny? I mean, sure, we'll, by all means. I mean, I th I think the main thing to focus on one of the main, main things they take pains in this first chapter to focus on is just his degree of not only just self confidence but belief. As you said, he wants to be the kingmaker, but not just for the events that happen around him, but for the very fabric of reality. Mm -hmm. That he's so so self possessed, so confident in his abilities, so absolutely certain in the power of his will. That he believes he can actually affect basic, like, you know, probability through just wishing it to be. Um, so James Arthur Williams is a real man. Okay. Born December 11th, 1931. Died January 14th, 1990. Mm -hmm. He was the only person in the state of Georgia, Georgia to ever be tried four times for the same crime. Um, and yeah, I, I sent you the Wikip you guys the Wikipedia link in uh, Skype, but basically, yeah, it talks about how he was charged with um, both murder and sexual assault um, for killing Danny Lewis Hansford. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it seems like it's a very, uh, very true to life. Um, apparently, when he was uh, 24, he bought three houses on Congress. Mm -hmm. um, and apparently he restored more than 50 houses in Savannah um, and other places in Georgia and South Carolina. Um, and apparently there are like five or six different, um, notable Savannah houses that he restored, um, including Armstrong and Mercer house. So I'm sure both of you saw houses that he restored when you were, um, out in Savannah. I did. And I didn't even realize it was his necessarily. So I just saw it as, oh, that's the house from glory, which they talk about later in the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I saw it, but did not realize either. Uh, as you as you noted, BJ, it's important to note that this this is very much describing true life events. And though I have similar to like with you know German Capote, I have my doubts as to whether certain conversations occurred quite the way he says he did, or whether he just happened to be in the back of the car at certain moments. 
it, it, I don't think we, I don't think I can in any way dispute that the main events he's describing, the main characters he's describing, are true to life, even if he's using a certain degree of artistic bend in how and when he's depicting. Yeah, and I, he does mention that um, at least some of the things that he describes are out very much out of order, but in this order they made a better. Uh, story rather than right. in the exact order that they happened, which, you know... For the sake of narrative. Exactly. What, what did y'all make of his... Um, this dice game of his that they that uh, is in the first chapter? Psycho uh, Dice. Um, yeah, it, so it actually does reference an actual um, study by Duke University. Of course it um, came Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, of course it did. Um, and there have other, been other studies that, that do kind of similar things, um, and Basically, remote prayer and things like that have been maybe vaguely reasonably shown to help improve patient outcomes and things like that. Um, that but I don't know how well controlled it is for uh, placebo effects and other wonderful things that we know exist now, um, rather than just, uh, you know, if you think something hard enough, it'll come true. Yeah, I think it's kind of a it fits the character very well, um, and we'll get into a little bit later uh, hoodoo practices that, that he uh, avails himself of to try and his uh, chances in the courtroom. But but yeah, I, I think it's uh, a, a... I guess it amuses me a lot in how people sort of read scientific studies or things like that and then decide how they apply to real life. Um, and I think this is a great example of, all right, well, you know, there are some people thinking about something and it had some outcomes. So I'm going to have this game where, you know, it's, it's Yahtzee, but you think real hard at the dice. It, it, it just adds to a very interesting, um, incongruity to the uh, first chapter of Wonder Picking this character where, um, as you, as you guys have said, he's essentially like a, a royalty in his palace. I mean, he's sitting among the various vestiges and artifacts of the, um, the Romanovs, of Napoleon, of all of these incredibly valuable works of world history. He is describing to the author that he's so confident in his own abilities that he can affect the statistics on dice. This is a person that is truly a king on his throne, talking of the world that he rules. And then in enters Danny. Who, what do we want to say about Danny? Uh, well, I had no idea what to make of him, and he just utterly shocked my view of Jim Williams as a character in very short order. Because <laughs> I, I, it first made no sense to me, as it doesn't for the author, that he would allow a destructive whirlwind of a human to uh, seemingly be lording over him. So I feel like the, the coloration that we get of Danny when he first shows up as you know, very angry, you know, basically wants to get drunk sometime in the early afternoon, it sort of seems, and, you know, is just pissed about, pissed at the world, mm-hmm. um, is is the, the, the author sort of leading you into the story, and, and it's very much, you know, uh, you know, a hook to, to get you interested. Sure. And I wonder how this plays out in the movie, because... We later find out that, or at least we have it described as other by other characters as he's this like super sexy guy, and you know radiates sexual attraction. He's played by Kiefer Sutherland in the movie. If you wanted to know that, that's a very weird pairing <laughs> in my head. Well, it, it, it's Kevin Spacey and Kiefer Sutherland to give, just give you an image of our characters. In that the movie. that is an image. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but but the image that it's giving me is um, verbal Kint and twenty four, <laughs> and that that just doesn't go together as fine, Williams fine. and Danny Sutherland. Well, Sarah, what did you make of uh, Danny as a character, and and as well as his entrance? Because his entrance is just key to introduce to uh, how we view him pretty much going forward. Yeah, no, it's fascinating because I think that whatever you think about Jim Williams and the self presentation that he is doing at the very beginning of this book to Barrent, um, the kind of whirlwind of Danny coming into the scene cracks that. Um, immediately subverts it. Yeah, absolutely. And so you get, it's, you know, I'm sure that this is, maybe this happened this way, but it is also a very interesting kind of narrative choice um, because you have this kind of Jim Williams narrating his own reality. He is the master of his own reality. Um, he is very carefully constructing this presentation of self to an outside audience. Um, and while we may have already had some some indications that he is perhaps not the most reliable of narrators when speaking about his own history, um, mm-hmm. then you immediately have this, oh, from, certainly from Barron's um, description, this kind of mess of a young man barging in, um, very clearly shattering that illusion that Jim Williams has been trying to present. Um, and so, and, and very violently shattering um, oh, yeah. that illusion. So, so I have to uh, make a reference to one of our other podcasts here, mm-hmm. um, which is Whiskey on the Weekends, where a number of episodes, Spencer told one of the, um, I would say, titular stories in some ways of our group of friends, um, which is the New York Mike story. Yes. And um, my experience with this story uh, is in some ways to me reminiscent of uh, Danny Hansford just barging into uh, to this fairly sedate, fairly calm uh, conversation and interview um, because I was down visiting my friends and all of a sudden this massive, really drunk dude just comes in and, you know, blows apart our entire night essentially and Mm -hmm. so i sort of imagined that larger than life in some ways just dude just comes in and completely changes what's going on that afternoon yeah i mean it's oh go ahead oh sorry i was just gonna say you know it's no longer about jim williams and Mm -hmm. his antiquing and his restoration of houses it's about this uh punk rock kid that's just you know cursing and and uh breaking things yeah i mean the very atmosphere in the room changes right um so can i read just like the first paragraph of like when we are introduced to danny um because i think that this is like very i think i think it's important Um, and i'm gonna do something terrible and and go check on my pecan pie and i'll be right back (laughs) this is a real thing listeners this is actually happening um okay well while BJ checks on his um, pecan, pecan, pie. Call Um, call it as you will. (laughs) um, I will will do a reading. So we are in this very urbane situation, right? Suddenly a sharp voice cut the air. God damn it. God damn it, bitch. A blonde boy stood in the doorway. He appeared to be about 19 or 20. He was wearing blue jeans and a sleeveless black t-shirt with the words fuck you printed in white across the front. He was trembling with barely controlled fury. His sapphire blue eyes were blazing. So that's the kind of first introduction we get, which I had not like 
cued in on Sapphire Blue Eyes, but that's like very romance novel um, mm-hmm. in its description, which is interesting um, in this. But it's like, given what we have been talking about with Jim Williams up to this point, everything about that very brief paragraph is disruptive. He's just almost like a parody of disruption. It's like he's a modern day punk Heathcliff in some ways in terms of his effect upon this story. <laughs> For, forgive my Wuthering Heights reference. Um, it, he, I mean, as, as you described, he is starkly attractive by everybody's description. He, I think one one later character describes him as just walking sex in terms mm-hmm. of the effect he has on people. Mm-hmm. And just he builds his own persona. We saw how carefully Jim Williams has tailored his own persona, his presentation, the trappings by which he lives his life. This guy does the same in that he's walking in with his spiked blonde hair, his fuck you t-shirt, his tattoo on one arm of a marijuana weave and his tattoo on the other one of a Confederate flag. Which is a hell of a combination. Oh, yeah, definitely so. Uh, He is in many ways representing the same... We're getting a very interesting portrayal of a character to pair with Williams because they could not seem to be more opposites, Mm -hmm. but they are in some way joined with each other. And the narrator is immediately fascinated with that question, but is too polite really to go into too depth, too much, to ask too much about it. Yeah, and the only, um, or at least the first explanation that Jim Williams offers after Danny has come in, um, just yelling expletives and going for the vodka bottle um, and complaining about his girlfriend, the only explanation that Jim Williams offers to begin with is that was Danny Hansford. He said, he works for me part-time refinishing furniture in my workshop. (laughs) Which isn't really the question that was being asked by the narrator there into, okay, he works for you. Why does he have the run of the place? Why did he walk in? Why did he just curse out his boss apparently and then run out of the room screaming and cursing? With his vodka. (laughs) With his vodka. Um, Yeah. To... to which Jim Williams, you know, follows it up with, I, you, you know, I've I've passed out a couple times, got hypoglycemia. He, he cares for me. Yeah. To which, to which the narrator thinks in his own head, I, you know, I think the hypoglycemia would probably be less disruptive than that kid would be, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, you do you, sir. Right. And so Jim goes into this long explanation that is, it's long, but it's very sketchy. Uh, very light on the details of kind of how they're intertwined. Um, Some of it has to do, Spencer, as you said, with um, the idea that Jim Williams is incapacitated in some way. He has been known to pass out. He needs someone to check on him. Fine. Um, Mm -hmm. But what Jim seems to do from his description for Danny is to bail him out of jail fairly regularly. Yeah. Um, he, although he, he, he exercises his control by allowing Danny to occasionally spend a night in jail, um, which yeah, seems think, to be working real well. I think, I think so I'm going to draw uh, a quick parallel here to uh, one of our favorite TV shows, The West Wing, mm-hmm. where Sam uh, has a short relationship with uh, the actress who plays Cuddy on House. Yep. Um, and it, it sort of... You know, it starts out relatively innocent. You know, you met this girl, they hung out, and, you know, they, they have a relationship that, you know, he, he when not really asked about, but, you know, he starts talking to some of the other characters, and it's like, oh, well, we met, and she's a law student, and, you know, I'm helping her out, and whatever, you know? You know, as you do with prostitutes, um, you know. High-priced call girls. Yes. Right, yeah, yes, sorry. Hi, you know, high, v- very high-priced call girls. <laughs> 
to which I presume a very high price call. Yeah, it, I, I love that because at least it's one of my favorite lines of when Sam's trying to explain to Toby what happens. And I may have accidentally slept with a call girl. Accidentally? I don't understand. Did you trip? <laughs> but yeah. So. so so it kind of reminds me in that where it's just like, you know, somebody who is in this person's life where as an outsider looking in, it's just like, how did you get into this situation? What happened? And why are they a continuing part of mm -hmm. your life? And when you know the internal logic, it makes sense. It's, um, well, after well, <laughs> a fashion, it is, I mean, it, it is explicable. And, and as you as you said, Sarah, he uh, Jim Williams immediately takes pains to reframe it back in a way of where he's in control, of where he describes in detail mm -hmm. exactly what's going to happen to Danny, about how he's going to be arrested, and exactly how he's going to exert control over how Danny gets out and when. That it's his decision, that he gets to control how Danny goes about it. So in some ways he's trying to reframe back for the narrator that, yeah, yeah, this is disruptive, whatever else, but I'm the one that ultimately controls what happens. I'm the one who chooses to allow this to occur on my own terms, as much as it may appear otherwise. He also says at one point, actually, I think Danny may be improving a little. <laughs> well, I mean, in terms of some of the his activities, uh, you know, like drunk driving and assaulting young ladies mm -hmm. um, and, you know, otherwise getting into sexual and other trouble, he may be improving. Maybe. That's well, true. It's, a, it's important to go into that, too, in terms of cause his criminal records can be made very relevant in the trial later on that Danny is bad news in a lot of ways that uh, he has consistently spent most of the last year or two of his life in and out of jail for a lengthy variety of crimes that's even led him to be estranged uh, from his mother for fear of her own safety yeah um, and actually so uh, my reference to him assaulting a young lady was I believe the one that described him as pure sex yeah. um, where um, at some point, this, uh, I believe, art student mm -hmm. um, sees him and, and is sort of taken in by his looks and his charm and, and his swagger um, and ends up uh, wanting to sleep with him and, and does and basically does so in like a parking lot somewhere, you know, in about a 30 second encounter. And then, you know, he she gets into the car with him and he starts driving and you know, just is like, all right, well, you know, we should be in a relationship or maybe this is like, you know, a day or two later. And it's like, we should be in a relationship and we'll go out and you'll be my girlfriend. And she's like, uh, I just wanted to have sex with you. I'm not really interested. And he proceeds to, I believe, choke her and, you know, speed throughout Savannah, mm -hmm. you know, and I think almost jumps up on a curb and, and, you know, is driving erratically and, and, you know, she's afraid that she's going to pass out because he's choking her. And so... Well, I was going to say one of the interesting things to kind of this, this specific anecdote that you're um, talking about, BJ, one of the really fascinating things that we do learn about Danny over the course of this book is how desperate he is to be in a quote-unquote relationship. He originally charges in complaining about how his girlfriend won't marry him. I think it's even his original introduction. And I, I think I think when he meets this girl, that he not only proposes that they date, I think he what proposes to her that they get married on like you know day two or even day one of them being together. Yeah. There, there's yeah, as you said, sir. There seems to be like a desperate longing of where he really wants to be with someone. He really wants someone to love him. I would presume. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and it's you know that and his obsession with death and his death and where he'll be after he dies it's just recurring themes that he brings up as a character um and i believe he basically is decided and committed to dying before he's like 30 and so he's you know intensely con- consumed with um that he's going to be buried in one of the more impressive plots and that if he dies in uh mercer house where jim williams lives he's gonna get a big headstone and and a more impressive grave than you know otherwise that's one of the reasons that he associates himself with jim williams which as a motivation to me is just baffling you know just it is so completely foreign and other and i guess really sets this character apart but in a way that i'm maybe a little curious about but do not understand whatsoever yeah i think it's interesting but i certainly find it find it alienating and kind of othering um i find it very difficult i get flashes of flashes of a little bit of understanding of of danny but for the most part, I also find him quite opaque. Yeah, uh, opaque and vile, be my mm-hmm. opinions of him as a character. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's very, he's interesting in a variety of ways. I mean, one of the first, I think, one of the places he takes this um, art student out on a date is he actually takes her to the uh, the graveyard, the graveyard which keeps showing up over the course of this novel. Mm-hmm. Same place when the first place the narrator goes when he's introduced to the city, it actually just even you know like shows her the plot where he's expecting to be buried. Um, so this is a character that is just very much self-destructively obsessed with his own end. And seemingly, I mean, this quest of his, these seem, seem like in two ways, two very contradictory or contrary quests of where he's dwelling constantly about his own end, about what he's trying to invest in terms of secure his soon and inevitable burial. While at the same time, he's also trying to invest in a long-term relationship to secure himself in some ways, to be loved and whatever else. Those don't necessarily really, really square very well with each other. So I think the corollary that maybe makes the most sense to me um, is that he may not want to die, but is sort of sees his impending death. Um, and the corollary that I would draw is to uh, young military uh, men going off to a deployment and getting engaged or married to young women of their age that you know, they've known sort of for a little while Mm -hmm. because they feel that something that's necessary in their lives before they go off to war. A a necessary milestone or maybe even someone to leave behind that will remember them? I, I, again, like, you know, uh, I would say another completely foreign concept to me, though we might have, um, our, our friends in the military might have better insight since they probably spent a lot more time with these young men. But again, not something I understand at all. Um, though I'm probably, I guess, on the weirder side of that with uh, than, than the more common populace that probably understands that better. We, I think we talked about a little bit that uh, for various character shows he gets into, several of these characters show up at various moments. And we see the chapter he does about the art student and Danny. We also see Danny just randomly show up in a... We, we see him, like, speeding through town, his criminal record. We also just see him, like, randomly show up naked in other people's bed. So he is a character that many people in Savannah appear very much aware of. As we find out later in the story, he actually has quite a reputation as, um, I believe, a professional uh, gigolo, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting because um, we talked a little bit about how Jim Williams kind of floats through these other vignettes and stories and and character sketches that we see. But I would almost argue that, that Danny 
does perhaps even more and at least more sort of concretely than Jim mm -hmm. Williams does um, partially, I think, because Danny comes across as a much more, more like physical being in the world as well. Um, Very much so. In, in a couple of different ways. Yeah, so I would contrast the two where Jim Williams' influence and his uh, character and personality get talked about in mm -hmm. society. So he shows up throughout the book in mm -hmm. that way where people are talking about him or gossiping about him um, or something along those lines, whereas Danny Hansford shows up uh, in like it corporally, yeah. you know, he, his, his body is there. His uh, having sex with people all over the place is sort of happening all over the place. And so mm -hmm. that is very bodily. Um, and yes. uh, Jim Williams is, is really not, um, Jim mm -hmm. Williams is ensconced, as we have said, he is a little bit of a recluse. He is ensconced in his manner um, and is very, um, it seems somewhat hermetically sealed around him. Um, he has very little actual contact with the world. Yeah, I mean, as much as, you've, as much as his life is built around this excess in terms of the presentation, it almost has a Catholic church effect of where it's the you know, elaborate cathedral, but he's living almost a monastic life in the carriage house behind just remodeling his furniture. At least that's how he represents himself. To Spencer, I'm going to make a parallel that's make you and me, Sarah, uncomfortable. Um, so it's... <laughs> um, you can almost imagine them as like Obi-Wan Kenobi and Han Solo where, you know, you have this sort of older gentleman that controls a lot of the, the rest of Star Wars. And then you have the sort of physical presence of the dude that, why is he even associated with, you know, this older sort of uh, retiring man? Um, well, outside of fan fiction, I don't believe those two are banging inside the Star Wars lexicon, though I may have read that wrong. There could have been subtext I just never particularly picked up on in that relationship. I would guess it was more like presence of character. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, but but you know, whatever um, fan fiction you're writing in your off time is is. Yeah, you know. I've I've never either seen or depicted Han Solo in that kind of bodily manner to keep the keep the term going. <laughs> uh, but I mean, I, I I think I think we've explored a bit of how the the I mean, it's so accurate to describe as a bodily presence. Is it's such a different way of a character being depicted, and so interesting that these two are paired and joined at the hip throughout the story. But I think another thing, to, uh, as we were setting up the murder that will inevitably result that we need to go into about the characters, is um, you kind of referenced it already, BJ, but uh, Jim Williams' rivalry with uh, Lee Adler, of where, particularly in his opinion, that serves as an integral part of why the uh, the indictment and uh, trial play out as they do. I mean, I think now that we've uh, skirted around and referenced it, at some point should dive right in, and I guess I can start in Please. that. And so... Um, somewhat tangentially to to the narrator he basically finds out and savannah finds out at some point that uh danny hansford is killed in mercer mm -hmm. house and he was shot a number of times and basically the entire police force then comes out and tries to find out what happened and then there's sort of a series of unfolding of what actually what different people say happened that mm -hmm. night um, I think we'll have to, uh, we might have our own theories of what actually happened that night, but we, and I appreciate this, we never get a omniscient view of what happened that night. I, I, think, um, we, yeah, I think we hear tell about probably at least five different potential versions of what occurred uh, with that. And about half of those from <laughs> Jim Williams or hearsay <laughs> from somebody Drink that Jim from Williams his mouth. sold. Mm -hmm. Right. But, I mean... It, 
it's originally described as being very much in Jim Williams's favor that he describes to the papers, he describes to the public, describes to the officers that it was an act of self-defense, that this kid that you all knew was violent, that you all knew was dangerous, that you all knew was unstable, he pulled one of my Lugers on me and fired a couple shots off, and I had no choice but to shoot him down where he stood to protect myself. And everyone originally assumes that, well, obviously it was self-defense, he will get off, that there will be no indictment, there will be no issue about it, that these things happen. And then it... I mean, once he already got off enough, now he's getting off <laughs> oh, again. Oh, Lord. Um, and so I, I think one of the things that we briefly mentioned earlier is that um, Jim Williams had this Nazi flag. And so he's apparently a, a fairly he doesn't say that he is a fan of the Nazis, but for some reason he has a lot of Nazi Lugers and medals and daggers and and flags and things of that nature. It just happens to be that they're very good collecting and, well, and reselling it also, says they aren't well it it does suggest that um nazi paraphernalia has for a variety of reasons had a sort of like resurgent interest to southern nobility or southern um the southern upper crust um that that has become like a fad among um the types of circles in which in which he is circulating as well mm-hmm. so i think it has a little bit of that um but it is also left somewhat unexplained why he has all of it. And so much of it, too. Yeah. I mean, it's the flags, it's the lugers, it's even, like, dishware and stuff. I mean, it is an impressive collection that he takes pains to say earlier in the story is not really marketable, which that is a very much changed since, I suppose. <laughs> or he's just lying about it. But he has an extensive personal collection that plays a direct role in the, uh, the murder that was on the, the well, at present, the killing of Danny. And so he has Lugers sort of all over his house um, because uh, as he sort of initially mentions that, you know, he has a lot of very uh, expensive things in the house. And so he's sort of decided that um, along with, I believe, an alarm system, but he's decided that having loaded pistols all over the house is a good way to keep all of that um, safe. Mm -hmm. I guess, an, another very Southern thing. Well, one of the initial things that's left up in the air and goes on for several months of ambiguity is that they're going to, you know, do a gunpowder residue test on Danny's hands. Because if it is, as Jim Williams said, that Danny fired two shots off at him, he should have some actual evidence of it on his person in terms of leftover gunpowder residue from the, from the gunshot. Um, this test is delayed by a couple months, which rouses some suspicions before suddenly Jim Williams is immediately indicted. And a very different course of events starts to play out than Jim Williams clearly expected would. Uh, basically, in Jim Williams' description is um, Danny comes home again in one of his rages and starts breaking things And uh, while Jim Williams is sitting at his desk. Mm-hmm. and um, Smashes an Atari. Yes, uh, smashes an Atari and starts smashing a bunch of other things. And... Um, sorry, I believe while Danny's at uh, Jim's desk, he goes over to Jim's desk, starts to like break something else and pulls out a gun. And then Jim Williams uh, goes over to get another gun. And then Danny fires a couple of times at Jim and, you know, the bullets miss him. And then Jim fires at Danny, killing killing Danny um, with like two or three uh, shots. Um, that, that is indeed Jim's story, but... 
as the uh, police investigation, which started out perfectly friendly, I think he describes them almost as if they're, you know, people on a tour of a museum in terms of the amount of people, uh, police officers that come into his home to check on the crime. Uh, and I believe he's, you know, essentially entertaining oh, yeah, them. He's entertaining them begrudgingly, um, you know, and showing them around, and you know, getting them, getting them food and and maybe a drink as you as you do when people. There's come certainly to your house. like lemonade and cookies involved. Um, <laughs> Yes. To the point where one of the officers even makes a recommend, even starts pouring like club soda on the bloodstain to help remove it from the carpet. Which well, you don't is, want that to set. It, this, this is this is me as an attorney dying inside. <laughs> I'm seeing them make no effort to preserve the crime scene, which proves relevant later. Yeah, I think several other attorneys died inside when um, they made no effort to preserve the crime scene. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it does seem like it, the whole situation seems a little bit like day at the fair for the policemen. Um, and they're just they wandering around, like picking things up, uh, and looking at them as well. They seem to be under the assumption that this obviously isn't going to be a charged crime, that this is a member of the, of, you know, the nobility of the town that's had a bit of an incident. They'll get swept under the rug. So let's just enjoy the trappings of it as we explore this house and then we'll be on our way. And I think this is a good example of Jim Williams being an unreliable narrator, as you know, you mentioned before, where he was talking about the other atrocities that have been swept under the rug for other important figures in Savannah. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, castration that you so gleefully <laughs> mentioned before, Spencer. Thank you. Crushing um, of the child, I mentioned well that gleefully as, too. Um... <laughs> Okay, Spencer. Um, as was mentioned in one of our other podcasts, your uh, uh, appellation of a, of a serial killer is, you know, getting stronger and stronger each day. But yeah, it, it's sort of a very, I, I think that this is being told sort of by Jim Williams to sort of line up with other things that that are nowhere near as bad as other things that have happened in savannah you know this terrible you know this terrible thing happened you know it wasn't my fault and of course you know i'm part of the the society and and uh you know he it was self-defense mm. you know why would anything interesting happen well forensics doesn't work out in his favor in that regard or possibly the first time first couple <laughs> times uh, or yes. also possibly a prosecutor who has been directly put in place by his immediate rival and enemy in town, Lee Adler. But in terms of the forensics, help, help me remember all this, but a lot of the of the evidence, at least as is laid out for the uh, first trial, is really heavily stacked against him and his version of the events. That, first of all, uh, Danny has no gunpowder residue on his hands. Uh, yep. Second, his body... Um, where the gunshots came from would not have been where he would have been standing at the time he was shot. Uh, uh, yeah, sitting. What? S he, he was sitting facing, so Jim Williams described it as he was sitting facing Jim Williams, and Jim Williams shot him a couple of times, and the bullet trajectories were such that um, they basically weren't... Well, it directly fired, you know, at his chest well, or yeah, whatever. There's two, two different things there. There's one where, where Danny and, was hit, that he was hit what appears to be twice in, like, the back, which wouldn't necessarily match the course of events that are being described. Also hit once in the shoulder, including once, like, yeah. almost, like, directly in the back of his head kind of thing. Um, also, even the shots that were supposedly fired by Danny were not fired where his feet would have been. They were fired where his head was, and so it wouldn't have matched um, where his head was after he fell. So it wouldn't have matched where he was supposedly shooting when um, Jim shot him. That there is... Uh, that Jim says one of the bullets struck a, st a stack of paper next to him before he returned fire, but there's little bits of paper sitting on Jim Williams's gun that's sitting on the table. 
and there's little bits of paper that were sitting on the chair that Jim Williams was supposedly sitting in. Um, and then the blood uh, pattern, like when Danny supposedly fell onto the desk or, or whatever or was, front, yeah. you know, in- inappropriate for, for the shot. And then the uh, their chair was on his pant right. leg. Uh, and... Uh, and that was one of the big and ones. And there's also no blood on the gun whatsoever. That all the blood had already congealed before it apparently made it to the gun, despite the fact there's gun, there's blood covering his hands and surrounding him on the carpet. So none of this evidence matches Jim Williams's account of events. And in fact, it directly contradicts it. So when the prosecution is setting up its case against him, though Jim Williams is the picture of confidence, and presumably his attorneys are too, it's made very early on apparent that his account of the events does not appear to square perfectly with reality, or at least there's something else at play. And we see that early on when his attorney is going to apparently meet privately with the forensic examiner, which normally you don't get to do that in terms of having the, your, your attorney go meet with the other side's witnesses without them knowing or being present. Um, but he basically just tells him, yeah, your client's lying through, his, lying through his teeth. None of this matches. You got your work cut out for you for this trial. Um, yeah, and so a lot of this comes out in his indictment, mm-hmm. um, and the other sort of part that goes uh, along with this is, you know, even at, you know as he's indicted, he's just like, all right, well, you know, here's all of the money that you need for bail. You know, do you mind if I go to Europe a handful of times and you know keep buying antiques and you know I'll totally be back. You know, obviously, you know I'm part of you know Savannah society, and but you know I have uh, a business to keep mm-hmm. up. I enjoy that even his bail when he's in jail was paid is paid in cash out of a brown paper bag that's just sitting in a cabinet, which raises so many questions about where Jim Williams may actually be making his money entirely from. Do Do you think it, it like it's something else? I mean, it just doesn't seem the right time period for any other I, I, method that. I don't know. I mean, he describes it as just it was the cash that he had set aside for his Europe trip that he now didn't that he would was. was about to happen at the same time this occurred, but hun- strictly hundreds sitting in, a, in cash, sitting in a brown paper bag to take with you to Europe does not necessarily have many of the hallmarks of a professional antique collector, particularly since he's you know planning to buy this at a professional auction, which probably wouldn't even take cash directly anyway. But I, I don't know. It, 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 it is an odd parallel to certain other kinds of things that might have been happening at this period. I mean, I don't know. I feel like we should entertain that. Do we think like he... Uh, you know, was a drug runner or something else. Like, you know, I guess the the other side of, you know, I guess being a real estate magnate, like I could see him making a lot of money there. But, you know, as you said, like, I just don't see uh, a reason for stacks of hundreds lying around unless he, you know, had other interesting views. Like, you know, he's, I don't know, I guess the not trusting banks and keeping money in plas- in, in paper bags kind of fits with, you know, collecting Nazi paraphernalia in my mind. It, it could be in keeping with his poor roots that, you know, he comes from a, a relatively dirt poor uh, mining town that he may not just have a lot of trust for uh, established lending institutions and may have more trust in cash. It also is the case that he's constantly traveling to major cities. He's constantly going overseas to Europe. He's maintaining a level of trade and goods that's high dollar value of questionable of high dollar amounts and questionable valuing of the items subject to subjective terms this is a pretty common cover for dr- for moving drugs or other illicit paraphernalia but or at least laundering the money sure, associated with sure. them but you know but but i guess i i don't see savannah as a uh 
a good port town and, and, you know, associated with many other things like major cities, like, you know, my, my hometown that was for many years famous, uh, for its drug trade, uh, so much so that, uh, well-respected, uh, TV show was made out of it. Um, I I, I wouldn't expect Durham to be viewed as the drug capital of the Southeast, but just the fact it's on the drug highway going North means that it is. Interesting. Um, I mean, I guess you would know where, where that starts out fairly well. If you're on 95 heading north, you are going to be part of the drug trade. That's just how it works, starting with Miami down near me. Um, so, Spencer, how do you get to your parents' house? Shut up. But, yes, yes, that, that is how I do it. I do not tend to make the trip in an overloaded Cadillac with the shocks worn out, but, you know, I could. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I, we get sort of other tidbits about Jim Williams as a character and how this trial continues with how how he deals with it and you know he basically just throws money at the problem and tries to continue with his life as um as he sees fit to live it with his you know continued Europe trips basically immediately after he um I say makes bail but you know just sort of throws uh cash in a, in a paper bag um, and you know, I, I guess you would know better than I Spencer about how bail is, is usually, uh, taken care of, but do, are there like court secretaries that, you know, will sit and count out money? You know, if, if your bail's low enough, can you just show up with like rolls of quarters or like bags of quarters and just be like, all right, well, here's my oh, bail. There are, pl- there are plenty of people that are at their uh, bail hearing, have the cash on them. They pay for their bail so they can leave. They just pay it to the clerk of court and they're out the door. Interesting. Yeah, nor- normally speaking, uh, bail was specifically designed to pre- to encourage you to return back to trial, which means they often, you know, say take your passport so that you don't go overseas in a way that you wouldn't return from. But at least in the early stage of this trial, they prove remarkably trusting with respect to Jim Williams, or at least, you know, accurately assessing Jim Williams that he has absolutely zero intention of running away from this. Is just so absolutely confident in his ultimate uh, ruling in his favor on this. So Spencer, how do you feel that squares with? Uh... The Eighth Amendment. Against except, well, I have many problems with cash bail. I think uh, it is a process which is designed in many ways to be, uh, well, not necessarily designed, ends up being abusive in terms of uh, the ability that it's wielded to um, punish people before they're even subject to any crime or convicted of any crime. Uh, so I actually do have a problem with cash bail in respect of the amendment. But is that, is that what you're going for there, BJ? Yeah, pretty much. I just, I, I think that this is an important Maybe, well, a somewhat important side note to um, basically Jim Williams immediately posting bail. And, you know, this might be a little bit more reasonable way of going about things where, you know, it's not particularly financially difficult for him. And he's mostly able to continue with his normal life. Um, you know, the allowing him his passport is a little bit um, interesting choice. but It's part of the reason that many states have actually done away with cash bail, that they instead do, similar to many other countries, they just do restrictions about how you're under house arrest, you can only go to do certain things, you can only leave at certain times, just ways of controlling to ensure that you're present, rather than giving you a, a, a cash means of controlling your own fate, assuming you afford it. But a, one interesting thing to explore as the uh, trial starts to get established is uh, Jim Williams and Danny's relationship. Um, I mean, I think it's an interesting point to talk about, about um, his attorneys seem very eager to frame the relation. Well, there's a running debate and a consistently changing focus about how their relationship will portray as part of the nature of his defense. And there's a lot of resistance, particularly early on, to calling it as it is that they were lovers. Um, 
Well, they were. I feel they, like that. That's they were a, engaged a, a, a in a sexual relationship. You, yes, I was going to say you're you're putting it very euphemistic. Sorry, I'm an attorney. Um, what do you want? That, 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 well, you know, that I, I guess uh, I, I didn't know attorneys were fond of euphemisms. <laughs> we are when it's our own clients on the line. Um, uh, but but yeah, it, it's sort of an interesting and and Jim Williams' reticence to admit to it is also kind of weird and fascinating where he doesn't want his mother to be present for the revelation that he's um carrying on with a a younger Mm. man uh or you know a man in general um and i i guess i mean it's also basically that anything that goes on in this courtroom is going to be the talk of all of savannah so even i assume a uh, a trick like calling her as a witness so she's excluded from uh you know the earlier testimony won't prevent uh her from finding out yeah but it does well i guess at least it does in some ways sort of seem to be a kind of for Williams, a vestige of the control of his own narrative that he was so concerned with at the beginning of the book as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so while he might find out, it is at least more, or while she might find out, um, it is at least more on his terms than it would have been, than it would have been otherwise. Um, I also, there's like a weird and interesting divide between, and this seems like a very kind of Savannah elite sort of thing, what is known publicly and what is known privately. Um, And so it doesn't really matter that everybody knows, but having everybody know in a sort of public forum, that's a very different kind of, um, has different social repercussions. It means you can talk about it in a different way and in in different circumstances and to different people. And one of the interesting things about kind of, in the early parts of the trial and in the early, I've forgotten a little bit of the timeline of what happens in each of the trial um, Mm -hmm. because there are so many of them. But one of the interesting (laughs) things in the earlier part of the kind of trial section is that in the beginning, at least when he, when Jim Williams gets bail, when he still has his passport and can travel, like the major fallout of this whole thing is the sort of societal question of do we go to his Christmas party or not? <laughs> uh, yes. And I think it was the first one where, you know, he, he wasn't in in prison. He was out on bail um, where he invited his uh, arch nemesis, yeah. the Adlers, to, to his uh, party sort of as a... Um, I thumb my nose at, at, at you, sir. Mm-hmm. Then later, I think, invites them again to a little garden party that his mom's throwing for quite the opposite purpose of, okay, let's try to make peace because you're actually screwing over my life now and I'm running out of money. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, that's when he actually goes to jail. Yeah, it's after he's in jail. Um, so, so, yeah, it, he, he very much sort of continues his uh, playing society, um, which I, I sort of found interesting because it's it's as if he doesn't know how he has fallen from grace in society or maybe he knows but is trying to keep up mm-hmm. the pretense i mean i guess what what is your impression because i guess my impression is that he thinks that he has maintained his position in society at, throughout his trial basically up until he's actually put in jail um 
I be- I think it was after the second yeah. trial. I, I'm not 100%. Um, and basically up until that point, he thinks he's controlling everything about this and hasn't changed um, where he is in society. Whereas it feels to me like that's completely wrong. And basically as soon as you know, some of the details came out about what happened, it then confirmed all of the things that people were sort of talking about in uh, maybe this, this is what we think happens, and hushed tones, and now he's basically lost all of that um, purported respect or um, standing, I guess, in, in Savannah society, and it basically has opened up the floodgates of all of the rumors and whispers that people had but weren't shared in a concerted manner before that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it felt that way. I think it felt that way to me. I mean, you. it seemed to me that you had a little bit of the kind of psycho dice thing going on with him where if he just wills it hard enough, um, he has maintained his place in society. Although I think what we really get, and BJ, you alluded to this, but what we really get is not even, in my mind, his fall from grace in the society, but the kind of unveiling that he never had the position in society that he thought he had. Um, And so that this kind of scandal, part of the reason that other people have not had any real repercussions for the types of crimes or peccadilloes or scandals or whatever um, that they have gotten away with is that they were quote unquote legitimate members um, Mm -hmm. of the Savannah elite, which Jim Williams is not in a lot of people's eyes, um, much as they love his Christmas party. Um, And they recognize that he has a lot of money and influence. He was never part of of that society. Yes, Sarah, I think you have the nail on the head there. That it seems like, particularly for like the first trial, even part of the second, that he's working under the assumption that his position in society will protect him. That there's no need for him to act differently. There's no need for him mm-hmm. to be at all concerned with the aspects of his defense because he is a member of the protected society, and so there is nothing to worry about. That he is forever safe in that little protected sphere. And it's only after he's convicted. Well, even after he's convicted, maybe he, you know, and put in put in prison after the second trial. Maybe it's still become real to him, but he still, even then, refuses to accept it. That he still tries to keep the uh, various aspects of a free man of society in terms of, you know, sending off letters, having calls routed through his jail cell to his house so people won't even realize that he's in jail. Sending letters off on his still his official stationery as if he was still writing from his own desk at home. But there's an element of desperation about it at that point to keep this uh, errors of society going in a way that he has probably himself even long since recognized that whatever position in society he thought he had long either A, never existed, or B, is long since gone. So I actually wonder if his place in Savannah society only exists outside of Savannah, Mm -hmm. and that's sort of what's convinced him of its reality, because, you know, basically everywhere and everybody outside Savannah knows of Mm -hmm. him, and sort of noses him as being part of Savannah society, where, you know, the, uh, you know, Better Homes and Gardens covers or whatever the actual... Uh, I think it was uh, Architectural Digest. Yeah. <laughs> that that sounds right. Um, uh, I'll take your, your, your guys' word for it. And, and, you know, all of the people that come visit his home and that, um, what was it, 
Jackie mm-hmm. Kennedy. Uh, Onassis. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, yeah, Onassis uh, came in and offered him money for his house. So it's he has recognition as that sort of level of society, but not from anybody in Savannah. And for whatever reason, he has taken this as he is part of that part that echelon of savannah society where it is only the people in savannah that can grant that and he just doesn't get it yeah he has that kind of that external validation which as you say he kind of he takes as an indication of his entree into society but the inner workings of savannah society are revealed i think in this book to be convoluted um opaque nuanced somewhat whimsical um and really really impenetrable very very insular. yeah mm-hmm. well um but we'll, we'll just focus on a roughly in order we got four trials to go through here uh <laughs> the uh right so yeah the first trial um but he was uh i mean the first trial the first trial he was con- he was convicted yeah. in <laughs> very in very short order his defense had roughly so- focused around the gunpowder residue and um a few aspects with respect to that um there's a certain point in here i almost want to just do a, a separate part on legal error because there's just aspects of my soul that were dying through half of these trials as they were going on but we, we can <laughs> do you do want to do a book point. nerd bitching um i, I might do a legal yes. nerd bitching <laughs> or, or a, a law, yeah. law nerd bitching um and so bobby lee cook um is the uh defense oh, yeah. attorney um and so basically he was convicted and sent to life in prison he appealed and posted a $200,000 bond and it's in this time that cook received an anonymous re- um copy of the police report and um the police officer contradicted himself and so the judgment was overturned mm-hmm. and a new trial mm-hmm. ordered which is not the first time he starts getting anonymous evidence in the mail that helps uh change the nature of the trial and the appeal going forward um but as a result of the verdict being overturned uh he's immediately been brought in for a second trial which oh oh you'll like this spencer sorry i'm sorry i'm interrupting you so bobby lee cook is a defense attorney from southernville georgia Mm -hmm. um and um as I, i believe is uh vaguely referenced in um the the book itself um, though slightly differently, apparently, supposedly, he is the actual inspiration for Matlock. Really? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, according to his Wikipedia page. So I, th- I, th- I thought you'd like that. It's a very different impression of the character than what I had from uh, reading him <laughs> into this text. <laughs> I wasn't picturing Matlock, really. Um, I'm, actually, I'm actually blanking now. For the second trial, he, start, he brings in a bigger gun in terms of a, a very... Yep, Sonny oh, Siler. S- Siler is his name? This Sunday is the one that is just a bulldog to the core, yes? Uh, yep. So he's a trial attorney from uh, Savannah, Georgia. Um, and according to Wikipedia, he does own Uga. <laughs> yeah, that was an interesting little chapter. I felt like we'd gotten back to the char- to the uh, character-focused chapters with that one, as he just kind of follows him to a University of Georgia game with Uga in tow. Uga 4, I believe. Oh. Was it Uga? Th- I, think it, I think it was Uga 4, and we get Uga 5 shortly thereafter in the story. Uh, yeah, I, I think he was Uga 4 and then Uga 5, um, and apparently, uh, right now up to 10, oh, wow. um, which is I... Is he still, is he still in charge of Uga? Uh, I, 
I assume so. It, it, it says he's still alive, and, you know, it says that since the 1950s, Siler and his family have owned and maintained the unbroken line of live mascots of the university. So, that seems right. I, I guess yeah, I'm guessing. Pra- practically another 30 years. In um, some ways, I'm surprised, but, you know, like power to him. Yeah, and Spencer, this will put oh, you God. to shame. So <laughs> he went to uh, uh, University of Georgia for his bachelor and law degree, he earned his bachelor degree in 1956 and his law degree in 1957. The fuck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd like that. Um, well, I'm, I'm assuming there was some kind of combined expedited program then, because you really can't do that now. Um, yeah, and, well, and he was on the bar at the time, uh, the president of the bar at the time of this trial. Well, he... Attempts to put on a very spirited defense for the second trial, again, going heavily after the gunpowder residue and bringing in his own varieties of character witnesses to essentially try to assassinate Danny, or Danny's character, which you, again, really can't do. This judge is really, really flexible on the subject of attacking the victim and also, you know, massive amounts of hearsay evidence. But again, legal nerd bitching to be done at a later point. Well, it also seems like the judge is, like, sort of half asleep um, for a lot of this after the first trial, so... There's only so much you're going to catch, Spencer. Doesn't he, doesn't he even directly say at one point that the judge is just literally asleep on the stand, occasionally opening his eyes if something new actually comes up? Yes, he does. That's always fun and the presiding arbiter of the verdict. <laughs> um, the second trial results in uh, very much a similar verdict to the uh, first, in that he's convicted and sentenced to life in prison. And uh, after this one, they're no longer inclined to grant him an appellate bond. He spends the next several weeks. It's like two years that he spends in prison waiting for his appeal to be considered, right? Uh, yeah. And so this is the one where um, the prosecutor pulls a little bit of... Uh... Well, yeah, yeah, let's frame it. The first trial ends largely because in his closing statement, he presented a, the prosecutor presented a novel, never-before-argued-in-the-case legal theory. Uh, no, second. He did it in the first one. He does it in the second one, too. In the first... In the first okay, one, he yeah. does the thing about the police officer, where he says this that the, oh, right. this shooting that occurred a little bit before it was used as a key aspect of their case to try to say that the victim was violent and a threat to substantiate their their um, um, self defense defense. Uh, that he a month earlier he'd fired a gun and been arrested by police. In his closing statement, the prosecutor says that all of that was fabricated, and this attorney's this um, investigator said as much that the bullet hole in question was brand new. Um, Blah, 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 which is all fresh argument in a way you can never possibly do in your closing. You learn that in 101 law school, and the verdict is overturned largely on the basis of that kind of new argument that the other side can't rebut because it's in a closing statement. Second trial, he tries to do the exact damn thing again for this yes. time. And, and he, he, so it, it's referenced that the uh, prosecutor is a big fan of paradise. Yeah. And so this is very oh, yeah. much like the, uh, uh, book and tv show perry mason where in his closing arguments he sort of brings up something completely new and is supposed to sway everybody in the courtroom and he he essentially does so because in the second trial one of the big things that um uh siler uh makes a big deal about is the heavy pull on the gun the uh, german luger that uh danny was supposed mm-hmm. to have fired and so it's because it's that uh, heavy pull and the uh, that it's not particularly reliable in how it sprays gunpowder, etc., etc. That all of these that he missed uh, Jim Williams and you know the powder is weird, etc., etc. And in his closing statements, Williams uh, 
brandishes the gun and you know presumably unloaded but it's torture you never know and uh pulls the trigger a couple of times showing that that it it has a very uh well, light pull and so even more the uh, even more theatrically he has a purposefully small and ephemeral uh, associate the prosecutor has a purposely small and ephemeral associate of his do the pulling of the trigger just to oh, show yes. that yeah. e- even That's more right. so to the jury that this aspect he, of his case he, even a uh uh, a small and, and weak woman or whatever it was fired yeah. this gun which at this point i was just screaming in my seat of where okay this is not even just not knowing the law this is a lack of pattern recognition of where you got your first <laughs> verdict thrown out doing the exact same shit and you're trying it twice i mean i, I early on i had a pretty negative impression of both sets of attorneys i think i think even the, the when the narrator goes to talk with them i think including the prosecutor they both talk about how oh yeah we got all these incredible surprise witnesses they're gonna, they're gonna, you know, completely knock them off the rocker. There's no way they can be prepared for them. And I'm just sitting here reading this with my head cocked, going, "Okay, none of you know criminal procedure, or assuming the judge doesn't, I guess, because you really only are allowed <laughs> surprise witnesses on like two things, and neither of them are proving your case. So, okay, power to you. Let's see how this plays out. And it just goes downhill from there. Yeah, and I, I also wonder if the painting of Sonny Siler is as so caught up in university of georgia game in terms of like how his law practice goes much more painting a character rather than the person because it does make a really good story where you know the skill and interest of your attorney is purely dependent on you know georgia beating florida in a uh an important you've got people like outside listening to the score to report back during the trial yeah well I, i can see that happening like that 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 I'm I'm not surprised about. You know, I I could very much see that. Um, maybe maybe Lee a, a Duke um, UNC game ever an might, attorney for some. Yeah, a Duke. We UNC might need some game, reporting during you know, the middle of a trial you know, for that. It, exactly. You, you know, if he were, you know, in in a high level meeting or something like that, you know, I can see him, you know, having a, an intern or something like that, and she's like, you know. At some point, you know, every so often during the meeting, come deliver me some documents that are important for my presentation. But, you know, really just, you know, write on a post-it note what the score is. And, oh, you know, I, has Roy Williams call, called, you know, appropriate numbers the answer of is no. The answer is always no. Yes. <laughs> As a person has, you know, who's been a bag carrier for, for many varieties of hearing or trial. Oh, hell yeah. There's been any number of just utterly unrelated things that I've been tasked with doing during the middle of the trial. Just so the prosecutor can be, stay connected. Well, my, my boss can stay connected with something that's outside the proceedings. So without violating any, there's uh, no attorney client with respect per- to reporting on, ba- on, on basketball games. So ask it will, sir. <laughs> Well, it, it was more of any professional issues that you could possibly have. So what were some of the more interesting things that uh, you were essentially tasked as doing as a uh, um, junior counsel or, or, or judge? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's been times where I've been uh, said as the designated head nodder of where I've been, just been asked to be sit in the audience with all of the notes and all of the records so that if in the event that something is said that is questionable or uncertain or my boss or whatever else doesn't remember, he can just briefly look back at me and I'll nod yes or no or shake my head no just so he can get back on the right track with respect to things. <laughs> but that's more practical importance. A, lo- a live fact checker, uh, I like it. Uh, was this your favorite thing that you've ever done in, in your practice? God, of no. Um, 
There's other times where I've just... Oh, that's the fire there's trucks. There's other that's times right. where I've just been said, okay, I'm expecting a call about this personal issue. Um, if you could, you know, come in with a note and make it look like it's important to the case and just drop me off with this personal issue, I'd appreciate it. Just, you know, it's any number of things like that. As a legal intern, your job is broad. All right. Interesting uh, insight. I, mean, I, I was actually, uh, when I was working for the judge, I was at one point, uh, he stopped proceeding to pull me aside to ask me to pick up a cake. And so I left, the proceeding stopped, and I left to go get a cake so I could bring it back in time and return to the proceeding. Not carrying the cake, mind you, but the cake was still then delivered in his chambers for me to get back into the hearing. What was the cake for? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think it was his wife's birthday. Um, I think it was some kind of social event that was he needed to be to immediately after the hearing. Was it the French Revolution? No, no. It, my, my, you're confusing my judge and Brie Antoinette, sir. But uh, as I think, as as we said, the second trial goes, and uh, despite two years of delay, largely apparently with preparing the transcript of the proceedings, the second trial is thrown out for surprise, surprise, including fresh oral argument in closing statements. What? What? <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we go into trial number three. Now, trial number three is. Mo- the most one of the mo- one of the more exciting ones because suddenly in this trial after years of delay a lot of the prosecution's evidence is directly called into question for the first time his attor- Jim Williams' attorney is now actually doing his due diligence in finding out that a lot of the prosecution's framing of events and setting as to what the murder scene was like is directly contaminated or really really straight fraud on the court false um and I think it should be noted that um, they moved for a change of venue, but did not get it in this third trial. Yes, that happened in the fourth trial. So it's still in Savannah um, and still is essentially completely contaminated by all of the news that's been going on for the past couple of years, because as we see sort of in the rest of the book, this is some of the you know more entertaining and juicy gossip that a lot of the society has for you know quite a long time there's also a strong implication that at least in savannah uh, part of the reason for the uh, verdicts may be uh, jim williams's orientation proclivities yes i, I think that's pretty directly or indirectly stated a few times that part of the reason for the rulings may be their own uh, disdain for his activities um and that's one of the reasons that um, I believe Bobby Cook wanted to get out in front of it and have Jim Williams talk about his relationship rather than have it brought up by the prosecution and also Sonny Seiler. And so he might be a more relatable character rather than, you know, it being forced out by the prosecution. And so that's why it was such a big deal to Jim Williams that his mother not find out and you know, the back and forth with the attorney. It really didn't work out that well for Jim Williams in the second trial because he was in no way able to appear human in terms of describing these events. Um, that yeah. him just... I think they, they chose better than they expected with Kevin Spacey. <laughs> oh. Um, but for the, uh, for the third trial, they were able to directly target the evidence in a way they hadn't been before. Um, I mean, the gunpowder residue evidence that they eventually uncover is... I mean, it's not just fraudulent. It would get the attorney, it would get the prosecutor disbarred in a lot of courts in this country that he willfully obscured this point. That was it. The prosecutor that willfully did it, or the uh, uh, 
police it was officer. The prosecutor who didn't, who, who did not in in the disclosure provide a copy of the cover letter of the hospital that said that they put the bags on. Oh, okay. Ah. The police lied about it on the stand, and that's egregious as is. But it's the prosecutor who did not give over the evidence. And it's not the first time he's done this. The few times previously that he's not disclosed evidence that he should have, and it's gotten him in trouble. This time is incredibly egregious because it's a key aspect that he's built the case around. And he knows for a fact, presumably, unless the hospital left off the record, which I doubt, that the evidence that he's been building so much on with respect to this gunpowder residue is just utterly false. That there is an obvious reason for why it's in place and that his key star witness in terms of the police, uh, police investigator is committing perjury on the stand. And he keeps relying on it. I mean, there's not being good at your job. There's relying on Matlock and Perry Mason and Ironside in terms of trying your case. And then there's fraud on the court. And this is one of the key examples of where the prosecutor is just, he's committing crimes, essentially, to try to, get, try to win this case. But he's on the side of society, so, yeah. well, you know, we'll His we'll only punishment is, a real, is possibly a re-election campaign. Um, but as it turns out, the, gun, the reason there's no gunpowder residue on the hands is because the police didn't put In fact, the hospital, meaning well tried to preserve it in a way that directly removed any possibility of it being preserved. And moreover, the police themselves engaged in no standards for preservation of evidence and for continuity of evidence with respect to maintaining the crime scene and moving the various things that they acquired there. Even the various pictures that the crime scene, the crime scene investigator took don't match each other because the events and objects were moved between takings. Um, and also that, you know, within the evidence that was provided, they only provided a very small subset of all of the pictures that yep. were taken and the ones that followed the uh, the story that uh, the prosecution wanted Which to Which is also out. egregious. The prosecutor has to provide everything. He can't hide anything. He can't just rely, he can't just give you what he intends to present. He has to give you his entire case. Which, again, I guess they just don't bring that up when you're learning from Perry Mason 101 about how to be a criminal. But um, And so, basically, even with all of this evidence, even with basically the entire case of the prosecution collapsing um the the jury comes back with 11 to 1 in favor of guilty and apparently there's one holdout that um refused to also uh put in a a guilty uh vote and so it declared a hung jury and and a mistrial and there's key aspects here of uh, events that have changed that lead to this new very different verdict in the last two times Point number one, and credit to the prosecutor, he actually delivers a, a brilliant closing statement where he finally does what you're supposed to do in a closing and where he brings his evidence together to present it in the way that's best for his ultimate case, which he should have been doing from before given the old, very strong winning evidence that he has. Point number two, Jim Williams also has a, diff, an, an, a, a new member of his legal team, my favorite, Minerva, his ultimate <laughs> um, best $300 yeah. legal investment. Um, and then I, I think the other thing that that's important to know is that um, I believe this jury is sequestered, Which and they so that yeah, so so the jury hates the jury hates that they're being put in this position. The judge basically, you know, forces them to do this, and then reads them the right act. That it's just like, all right, you know, you just need to come to, you know, some conclusion. Um, and I find it interesting that you know, eleven jurors that you know supposedly don't have any issue with. Um, his orientation is being weeded out by his lawyer um, and all of this evidence basically being shown to at least being heavily questioned, um, if not completely falling apart, of the prosecution still came back 11 mm -hmm. guilty 
fairly quickly. Uh, yeah, it, it, well, there's a lot of assumption that's being offered about prejudice with respect to what would be a motivating part of their, uh, their rulings here. Um, question that we haven't brought up, I was curious about, to ask you guys about, is that there's a lot of implication that throughout his appeals and trials that Jim Williams, is, well, we know he was using his money for his defense, but it also appears that he's using his money to try to fabricate evidence in favor of his defense. Did you guys um, did you guys read that the same way I did, that he's, there's a strong implication that he's yep. paying witnesses or possibly even... But also choosing very weird witnesses to pay. Um, he's, he's basically find, finding more... Uh, gigolos to to pay to uh support his case and that sort of makes me wonder if he already happened to have some <laughs> contact with these young men for some no. odd reason and AJ, why would you they happen to run in the same circle no i mean he yeah he is finding he is essentially doing a character assassination of danny right yes which yeah but pot kettle, well like i'm not saying it's a particularly successful one but like his goal <laughs> is a character assassination of Danny. Mm -hmm. Which is also kind of interesting because um, as... I, I don't know if this is sort of omniscient narration or somebody that the uh, the writer actually talked to, but that Danny Hansford is incredibly violent and leaves strangulation bruises on, you know, the, the young lady that we talked to previously, you know, and has had numerous uh paramours shall we say um i feel like had the act you know the facts mm -hmm. come out that you know were presumably taken as true by the author i feel like that would have been much better character assassination than you know some strung out uh male prostitutes that that jim williams may have been availing yeah. himself of and paying a little bit more to say hey you know uh danny hansford wasn't yeah the best dude no it was it was a, it was a weird attempt and it was a weird and somewhat feeble it came off anyway as a weird and somewhat feeble attempt um at doing this character assassination he also trolling to do magic to uh influence go down with his um hiring of minerva but I, mean, I, I, I want to discuss Minerva in depth in terms of her character section. An interesting character. Yeah, I think we should mention her, but kind of leave the details of her um, for for kind of the next yeah. section and because that that might go on for a know, while. The, the titular chapter yeah. of the novel yeah. and, and yeah. you know, sort of all yeah. of those but other things. Just as a practical evidence question, in terms of, you know, trying to set up things. Do you guys believe that Minerva played a key role in the mistrial with respect to this calling the paramedic and everything else? Because I think there's some implication there that she was actively working in ways maybe not just magical to help things out at that point. Um, maybe. I, I guess I I find the character of Minerva fascinating, but it's, I, I guess, the, the thing that I see in terms of uh, Jim Williams' psycho dice and Minerva is that I can't tell if he actually believes in the premise of Psycho Dice or he likes talking about it because he doesn't seem to, you know, participate in this intense concentration um, or anything else. He just sort of convinces other people to play, you know, become party to this intense concentration game. You know, he hires Minerva and sort of goes along with her and he's like, well, I don't believe in this crap. Which is super weird because the whole point is, 
you know, the whole premise of this is like, he believes in this, you know, intense concentration thing. And it's like, well, she's had me do all these kind of weird thing rather than, you know, she's had me do these weird things. And I've done every single one of them to the letter. And I'm super excited to find out how this is going to, you know, change my trial. And it's more like, yeah, I've got some other pokers in the fire. I've got some, uh, some weird, uh, hoodoo voodoo lady that I'm just going to hang out with. And, uh, yeah, that's going to be my, uh, my uh other power otherworldly powers coming in to to get the trial to come out the way i want it and i don't know to me it's just a very weird uh dichotomy of his character where you know this is something sort of important um to who he is in some ways because it's like the first thing that we're introduced to but it's not actually part of his character it's sort of like as much part of his character as him being embedded within savannah society yeah it seems to me i mean it is i think ultimately it it ends up being kind of one of the uh just many piled on mysteries of his character to what extent he he actually believes in this but i do i do think that it's Mm -hmm. clear that he enjoys being thought of as someone who believes in it and so i think it goes back to that kind of self-curation self-presentation, um, mm-hmm. self-narrating thing that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, where, I don't know, maybe maybe he does kind of believe in the secret. And if you think it enough, it will come true. But I think that ultimately what it comes down to is that this aspect of his personality is something that he has worked very hard to curate. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is certainly not going to let that fall now. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm going to cast aspersions to on uh, maybe people near and dear to your heart, Sarah, but I feel like it's sort of like the live, laugh, love crap that a lot of um, <laughs> women of what a certain age think that these have. Near and dear to my heart. That is personally offensive. <laughs> well, you're from the Midwest. I'm a Midwestern like, I like thing. That... <laughs> Casseroles are Midwestern. I don't, I don't know where that crap comes from. but but i feel like it's this there was this whole thing of like you know be close to people and and you know live your life and so all of this whole section of society has this like live laugh love uh picture frame and and crap in their houses and it has absolutely nothing to do with how they live there and that's kind of how i imagine this side of jim williams as it's like you know he has the eat pray love book on his shelf and he has you know the live laugh love and you know three pictures of him and his best friends on you know on a beach somewhere him and his attorney and, in minerva you know, that was six <laughs> years ago and they've never thought about doing it yeah again. um well you are welcome to come and examine my bookshelves for eat pray love um and i have a couple of other choice words I, i'm for not you trying in the to process but um <laughs> I'm not saying you specifically. I'm saying people that that you are okay. familiar with, because I've seen your bookshelves and I like your bookshelves and I, you know, I I know your house relatively well and I know you do not actually okay. have those right. things. Well, that's, okay. So. Hmm. Um. <laughs> okay. That backpedaling done. Um, <laughs> with, as you said, BJ, with respect, I mean, for my opinion on the the whole uh, magic thing, I I don't think. I think Jim Williams very much believes in, you know, his, the power of positive thinking. And I think in some ways he 
believes that Minerva is useful in that regard. It fits into his own beliefs about, you know, people thinking for him, positively working in this manner serves his interests. I think he disdains the idea of it being magical. I think in some ways, if it's if it is magic the way she believes, it takes away from the power that is him with respect to. Her. Um, so I, I think he believes that she's she is very much helping him through the means that he understands how it works. He just rejects any degree of supernatural label. But who knows? I agree that it is a very op- he is a very interestingly complex and contradictory that I don't ever have a firm grip upon, and I don't think we ever get a chance to. Um, well. BJ, as you said, the third trial ends in a mistrial because the jury can't reach a unanimous verdict. And the prosecutor, despite now having lost three times and presumably cost the state hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, decides, YOLO, let's try a fourth time. <laughs> yep. And this time they actually get a change of venue to uh, another Augusta. Uh, Augusta, yeah. city. In- which which yes. is an interesting city in its own right, too. I mean, we describes it in some detail as the, um, the interesting divide in the city between, you know, the rich gulf gentry associated there and the very very poor georgians that live around it but it immediately makes for a very very different trial than they've had before and that the jury walks into this with an completely different well i'd say different but i'd say indifferent probably might be the better way to describe their mindset as they enter these proceedings they don't know about this and they don't really care yeah it's such an interesting comment on and the the end of the book and I'm sure we'll talk about this more when we talk about kind of Savannah, but the end of the the end of the book really becomes this long meditation on how insular Savannah is um, and how prideful it is in that insularity. But you get this this real strong um, precursor to it at this trial that has been moved to Augusta because we have spent the better part of this book really steeped in the Savannah scandal of Jim Williams, um, where it is all-encompassing in savannah and you move a hundred miles down the road and nobody has any clue about it yeah it's jim who williams is that? who yeah. what what yeah. what's been going on like there was a martyr like all right whatever oh he's gay all right that's <laughs> that's a, great it's we such an interesting whiplash because i really assumed based on how in depth he's describing this how much of it's built up in savannah that this was like you know the the oj simpson trial of the year yeah it was like making national news then suddenly with this chapter, all of that is dashed. It's like, no, this didn't even make regional news. Mm-hmm. This yeah. um, so I, I guess I also didn't know much of anything about Augusta, so I pulled it up on Wikipedia. Um, it's apparently the second largest city in Atlanta, or in Georgia, after Atlanta. Um, and there, there's something just so south about this, <laughs> and I'm going to read a sentence to you. Um, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, Augusta Richmond County, which is really what Augusta is, had an estimated population of 100,000, 100, sorry, um, not counting the unconsolidated cities of Blythe and Hepzibah. Say those again. Hepzibah. Blythe and Hepzibah. Okay. And that's just so south <laughs> to me. BJ, before you went down to UNC, had you lived in the South before or spent any significant time there? Spencer, I I, I was born in the South uh, and, sure. and grew up sure. there. Baltimore, it, maybe. Ma- Maryland is below the Mason-Dixon y- Y'all didn't line. join the Confederacy. You're not the real South. Uh, we were not allowed to join the Confederacy <laughs> because then the the capital of the North would have been an enemy and that wouldn't And that, wouldn't that have been a coup? <laughs> no, but it, it's... There is there there are various kinds of the South. I mean, hell, Virginia is ver- barely being considered the South anymore. Um, I would yeah. agree, Maryland is south of the Mason-Dixon line, but compared to rural Georgia, it's a very different world. I, I think you'd agree. 
Yeah. And honestly, like, I, I would say, you know, the triangle area where, you know, we met. Very and, different you know, too. I went to UNC is also not, I mean, it's the South, but it's a very different the South than um, some other places. Uh, I remember uh, flying into Greensboro Airport and then traveling from Greensboro to uh, where the girl I was dating at the time, her parents lived, and it it became the South. And that was sort of my first real experience mm-hmm. of not just driving through, but being in the South where things like a drive through convenience store existed where you literally drove through the store. There was like a driveway in the middle of the store. You rolled down your windows and you asked somebody for things in the store. They brought it to you and mm-hmm. you paid. And that was just like... I this has no place in my world and it still doesn't honest to god like i still don't believe that that actually exists even though i experienced it it was all a dream bj yeah it was a sweet tea and and uh fried food induced mm-hmm. haze. i believe you mean magnolias and moonshine bj um okay probably <laughs> all right the, the fourth trial how does it end up resulting Pretty anticlimactically, I think you might you might agree. Yeah, it, it sort of once there wasn't anybody that had any previous expectation of Jim Williams and or significant prejudice to him and his uh, trappings of society invading Savannah society. They're like, all right, well, you know, the police completely screwed up collecting evidence and you know the prosecution has basically dismally failed to to prove anything beyond a reasonable doubt and there are so many holes in the in the prosecutorial evidence why would we ever (laughs) convict you know you just wasted our time you know bye i I think it even says the jury waits like an extra hour or something just because they're embarrassed to rule too early they want they want to make it look like they actually reached an important decision so as a result, uh, how criminal law works with respect to double jeopardy. If he's found not guilty, he can never be tried for this again. And so Jim Williams is free as a bird for the next, well, six months of his life. Yep. Um, and then he uh, got pneumonia and, and died of heart failure, which seems very, I don't know. I, I, yes, anticlimactic, but also like a little weird. Um, I mean, it's 1990, you know, it's it's not back far enough that that's untreatable or you know a a severe complication he was 59 it was it was suggested that his kind of like various stints in jail really deteriorated his physical health um so i would imagine that that's a kind of the compounding factor yes i don't remember whether this was in the book but i've definitely read in some of my searching online that the other very distinct possibility was that he had HIV yeah. or yeah. AIDS and so uh, uh, pneumonia or some other infection would have been way more deadly than uh, otherwise it yeah, might I be. That too. Um, so, I mean, that sort of seems reasonable, especially, especially given the fact that he seemed to have um, significant interactions with quite a number of uh, young gentlemen that seem to avail themselves of uh, Savannah and the surrounding uh, area. In terms of his general callers, we didn't mention this, but I was curious of uh, your guys' interpretation. When he's originally describing his Christmas party, he talks about the Christmas party, and then it's the only point in the book he talks about it. He talks about the gentleman's party afterward. 
the author isn't yeah the author is invited to it and i thought the author went because he said i'd like to go to the more interesting the one involving one. fewer gunshots uh oh yeah that the less interesting one though, uh, probably i, I didn't um, think he ever went to that one and i was curious as to y'all's interpretation oh yeah was that a gay party um i don't think so. it wasn't public Nobody else was invited in the same way. It was meant to be much more of a private affair after everyone had already gone to the Christmas party and then some ways distracted by that. So I, but I, I thought that it. I didn't think it was an all bachelor party. I think that some of the other like society males went every so often. But again, that could also still be a a uh, homosexual party, given that they could have just had beards of their wives or something of those lines. Um, I guess that was my impression. I wasn't sure. I was just curious. I was curious what you guys thought about it. My, my impression, sorry, my impression was certainly that, um, there was at least a kind of the, well, the way Jim, Jim Williams describes it in the beginning of the, um, in the beginning of the book feels like there is an, an air of clandestine assignation about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we ever get a clear answer on that. Uh, but my reading was that there was like something secretive going on. Yeah, I, I guess I guess now that we talk about it and the more like I think about it, I guess my impression was a little bit more like drinking and gambling and things like that. And then maybe like an after after party that had a little bit more um, Joe Odom style. That fun. might be fair. As you said, Sarah, in terms of his initial description, I got it up here. He describes it as, um, the second party is the next night. It's the one the papers never write about. It's dot, 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 for gentlemen only. Yeah, it's the ellipses that really uh, kind of seals the deal there. It's, I think also, yeah. later on, like when he's in, when he's dealing with the criminal trial and everything else, he holds the main Christmas party, but he distinctly cancels the gentleman's party. Mm-hmm. Um, which, again, could be because now the ga- the gay aspect of his life is out there in the open he's in some ways trying to hide or suppress or at least remove that one from the equation but i don't think we have enough necessarily to know it's just one of the assumptions i had about it well um else we're going to talk well one thing i found interesting as well about the ending it is indeed comes across a bit anticlimactic with his sudden death but the author takes pains to really frame it in southern gothic style of where the immediate chapter and we'll go into this with minerva is spent in a graveyard trying to, in some ways, keep the spirit of the boy down from his own vengeful ends. That they describe in detail how, when they found him, he was found in the exact position where he would have been if the boy had successfully shot him. So, there is an effort, I don't I don't know if this is the author just trying to put this upon it, or if people were thinking it at the time, of framing this as being, in some ways, uncomfortable and otherworldly about how he went out. Yeah, the Wikipedia page says that some sources say as the author said, that is in the same spot where he would have died um, if Danny Hansford shot him, and then others say that he died in the foyer outside of the office. <laughs> That's a pretty big difference. Uh, the police moving evidence again. Yes. Oh, God. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that was an interesting framing of it, and and I sort of won, you know, you presume that it, it had to have been in the foyer, otherwise, like, whoever found him would have spread that rumor around a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, but... Yeah, I, I, I think it sort of very much goes along with how the the story is told, and as you said, sort of a, a Southern Gothic uh, story. Um, I guess the the one thing that I that I wanted to get your uh, take on is 
what do you think happened? Sarah? You know, yeah. if, if you were to tell the story as, as an omniscient narrator, what's the story? Spencer, do you want to go first? <laughs> I'd already volunteered you. <laughs> I mean, I... He, he put his finger no, on no, his no, nose. No, no, I'll, I'll take it. I mean, I... I, um, I, I was going to say, I'm happy to go no, first. No, no, no. I'll go, because um, I ultimately very much agree with one of the interpretations that a character offers. I mean, we get, as said, like four or five different interpretations, imaginings of what went down that night. And the one I ultimately agree most with is Minerva's. I very much don't think that he necessarily was, uh, that he was doing this in self-defense. I think this was a, a crime of passion in some ways, of just final annoyance breaking. That he may not have meant to kill the kid, may not even necessarily have thought about it, but that he shot him and then worked to cover up the scene. That, that's, I agree with her interpretation for how it went down. Um, I guess... To me, I think that there's a little bit more um, a possibility that Danny got violent with things that Jim mm-hmm. cared about and maybe violent with Jim himself. Um, and that sort of led to Jim convincing himself that Danny was going to mm-hmm. hurt him. And while it definitely wasn't self-defense, it was, I don't have control over Danny sure. at all. And so Danny was sort of threatening to destroy precious possessions of his. And I would also guess that Danny was essentially, you know, doing sort of the suicide by cop, where it's just, you know, Danny picks up something that's, you know, more important to Williams. And Williams pulls out a Luger and says, you know, put that down. Like, you, you've you gone far enough. Put that down. Get out of my house. And at that point, you know... Basically, Danny says, you know, what are you going to do? Why don't you just shoot me? And that sort of Jim Williams shoots him and then sort of goes, oh, God, what did I do? And then tries to cover it up. Um, But there's a little bit more passion and violence, you know, especially coming from Danny, because, you know, there is that sort of very violent and streak to him. Unquestionably. All right, Sarah, your turn. Yeah, that's interesting, BJ. I hadn't really thought about um, about Danny's death wish in conjunction with this whole series of happening. Um, I, I think it makes a lot of sense, and I certainly agree. I don't really see, although Jim Williams is in many ways such a cypher figure, it's difficult to kind of suss out what his motivations are necessarily, but I don't see him shooting purely in cold blood. Um mm. I do, I do think that there had to have been, we have enough evidence that Danny is a very violent man. Um, I think that there must have been some sort of act of violence, whether, as you say, BJ, to possessions or to Jim Williams, to Jim Williams personally, um, that precipitated, that precipitated the event. Uh, but I think now I'm, I'm struck by the idea that it was in some ways consciously or unconsciously planned um, by Danny in that moment to kind of provoke this act of violence. Um, That's really interesting to me. So I have at least one more thing to offer up. And I guess it's probably too early. And this is just sort of me like forcing something (laughs) in because, you know, it was the early 80s. But um, and, and I guess, you know, I wasn't alive then. So I don't remember the exact play out of events. But um what if williams found out that danny had infected him with hiv or AIDS? you know and that 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 might have been part of the 
precipitating events and shooting Danny. But I think it's too early for that to actually be a thing. It's I, I don't know. It seems too early, especially especially in the South, for that to be a sort of known yeah, uh, a known I, quantity, I think, but I don't I don't know. I, I think the known quantity is the thing there that even if he was infected, I don't think he would have known about it years. I don't I yeah, I I don't I don't think we I mean but he was but but I guess if he was sick enough ten years later to die from pneumonia like to me, that might line up. I don't think we have to rely on one. I think I think with um, I think we have enough with Danny's violence to give it a possible reason right there and his own death wish. But I find it interesting that none of us believe at all um, Jim Williams' self defense defense. Do it. Yeah. Do we, do yeah. Give, mm-hmm. we none of us give it any credence whatsoever. So we all believe that he then played a key role in setting up the scene the way it ultimately appeared to the police. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the self defense like doesn't ring true to me with Danny having a gun. Yeah, I, I don't. I think the gun appears very much to be planted. Yeah. He might have right. men- menaced him but, or threatened him in other ways, but not with a gun. Right. I guess that's kind of what I'm saying. Whereas it's like a self defense, like depending on how you spin it and depending what exactly happened, like I don't see that that's outside of the bounds. But as not definitely not as a response to Danny shooting at. Um. How do we feel about Danny ultimately in some, well, how do we feel about how Danny's wish of getting a gravestone in that graveyard played out in the end? It's not quite the uh, remarkable monument that he was hoping for, but apparently um, Jim Williams did ultimately pay pay for the gravestone in the graveyard that he had been kind of hoping for. Yeah, um, I, I guess I take that as uh, Williams seriously regretted what he did. Um, and, you know, I sort of buy that it was a crime of passion and had feelings for Danny that I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't ascribe a normal person having, but maybe more of the possessive nature. And so, you know, he in that way sort of wanted to give Danny what he wanted, what Danny wanted. Yeah, I mean, I think that we certainly have... Um a fair amount of evidence to suggest that Williams did genuinely care for Danny as, as odd as their relationship and matchup seems to have been, although we get still relatively little insight into what it actually looked like. Um, but it is, it's interesting. And I, I know we'll talk more about this um, a little bit later, but you know, Minerva herself certainly seems to believe in her visiting of the grave that Danny is not particularly happy with any of it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I also find her commentary Mm -hmm. interesting because even though a lot of what she says has overtones of, you know, the spirits and whatever else, a lot of it's just sort of common sense advice. Yeah. Kind of wrapped up in, um, in the trappings of the spiritual world, but it's all grounded in things that we know as readers from other parts of the story. Right. But also like as Mm -hmm. just sensible advice, like don't, don't be an asshole about the, the kid that you just killed in the trial and, you know, basically blow it in front of the jury, but as a, you know, don't rile up his Mm -hmm. spirit and, uh, you know, but, you know, something that, you know, his various lawyers probably should have, you know, done a little bit better job counseling him with. Yeah, we don't get a lot of evidence that they did, necessarily. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, do we have anything more to discuss in terms of the plot? Or have we, uh, have we finished our run through what is, uh, one could argue, is the driving force narrative of the story? I 
think we finished the narrative. Yeah. I, I feel like we finished the narrative that has nothing to do with the main plot of the <laughs> Now player. we can talk about the stuff we actually want to talk about. I, I, I do love yes. we just spent like two and a half hours and we did not, we barely discussed who is actually the central character of the story, Savannah, or any of the characters <laughs> that color her. So it's a, Yeah, um, we basically, we, we didn't, I feel like we didn't even cover Jim Williams as a character other than like his relationship yeah. with the trial. So I feel like we have quite a bit to talk about in the next time or two about, yeah, about the characters. At least, at so. least one more episode. Um, yeah. Which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. DJ, as per usual, take us out. Where can people listen to our content with respect to our various and animal podcasts? Um, so I'm sorry. I feel like I, I need to call you out here. Have you actually listened to any of our podcasts that we put out? I have listened out? to three. <laughs> interesting where where have you gotten I have those? listened from the website uh, itself no, god no i've relied on the various uh, already edited copies that you guys send to me before you upload them <laughs> god uh that, that is it so is. Neat, Spencer. i appreciate that um tin tin can understand so we, we have Sorry. a web go on bj yeah so so spencer so there's a website <laughs> you, that we have all you're, our you're content going too, on it is called you're going too fast uh, website i know i know you're going too fast so so if you click on on the blue e and and then in in the the, the top space where you can type mm-hmm, something mm-hmm. the google um, i understand go on go, yeah so so search for okay. the google and then once you get to the google you you put in mangumtalks.com mm-hmm. and search for that and then if you click on the first site you'll get to the website mangumtalks.com and there you can access all of our content and you can even get in touch with us, you know, in the form of an electronic letter or an electronic post that, that we will receive. If you click on the top right, you know, contact us. You can uh, send us information, rants about Spencer's book nerd bitching. If he's completely wrong about the law, since he's not actually barred in Atlanta, maybe they have different, or in Georgia, since they probably have different rules there. Um, or anything like that, comments about the book, or anything else you uh, think that we should talk about. Um, you can also get all of our uh, other podcasts that, you know, some of which we referenced in this episode. There's Whiskey on the Weekends with myself, Spencer Lee, and Levi Baxter. Um, there is Mangum Hoops, supposedly Lee and uh, Levi every so often talk about the NBA. Um, there is GOT Got Questions, where Spencer talks about the books that um, George R. R. Martin is supposedly going to be putting out, and Lee talks about the TV episode while Spencer goes along for the ride. And there's a fairly new um, podcast where Lee and I uh, watch some comedy uh, stand-up on Netflix and basically pan it and tell you not to do the same thing. So, yeah. Um, and you can find all of those on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, or uh, anywhere you get podcasts. Uh, you know, I immediately got lost about two minutes in your description of how this modern technology stuff works, but I've got a nephew. I'm sure he'll lead me through it. I just thought you uh, had gotten lost in your calligraphy, Spencer, and couldn't quite keep up. There is an element <laughs> of that, yes. I was writing the note that I was going to send my uh, pigeon to the judge tomorrow, but no, I... This is why there's recordings. I'll catch back up eventually. But, y'all, it's going to be a blast talking over the next week or two um, about the characters and the world of Savannah itself, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Me too. Yeah, I'm excited to continue this, and uh, hopefully all of our others will will join us next week and uh, keep reading something good. All right. Till then, everybody. Hope, hope you enjoy it. Bye.
Bye, y'all. Have a good night.